Hello everyone, welcome to the first episode of 2020 for the Day Zero podcast. This is episode 23. I'm Spectre, with me is Z. So yeah, first episode of the new year. Uh, I guess it could be the, well, I guess it could be the zeroth episode of the new year, if we're going that way. Um, so we were, you know, on break for a few weeks, uh, I think, you know, three or four weeks, uh, due to like holiday stuff going on. Uh, and one of the things that I was doing was I was at CCC, the Chaos Communication Conference. So I figured it'd be cool to kind of open up the episode talking a bit about that uh, since it happened over the break. Um, so it was it was a bit weird being in Germany. Uh, it was my first time traveling internationally, I guess, outside of like I've traveled to the U.S. before. Uh, for those who don't know, I'm Canadian. So I've traveled to the U.S., but it's very different flying to a different country where the native language isn't English. Uh, so it was kind of weird uh, not being able to read any of the signs or anything like that. Um, but it was a really cool conference. Uh, you've been to CCC before, Z, right? Like, I know you've been there as a speaker. Have you went there as, yeah. like, an attendee? Uh, well, I mean, I was able to attend a little bit while I was there. Uh, yeah. But um, other than that, like, I haven't gone apart from when I was speaking there. Okay. I was just wondering, like, how much you were able to check out, because I know sometimes, like, uh, if I remember right, when you spoke there, you kind of had to fly there, speak, and then fly back pretty yeah, quick, right? it, You didn't I, really get to spend long there. I wasn't even there, like, I wasn't even in Germany for 24 hours. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, it, it was really cool. Um, it was technically my second conference other than DEF CON, so I've been to DEF CON twice, uh, and this was my first time at CCC. And I think, uh, I think I like CCC better, uh, and the the main reason for that is the the assemblies stuff. I think was really cool. Um, Defcon doesn't really have like. Do they have an equivalent to assemblies? Like I, I know they have uh, like uh, what do you call them? Not vendor areas. Oh, like the villages. But like I don't. Is that that's not really the same thing? I don't think. So, no, I mean, because CCC kind of pulls a bit more of a general crowd. Like, it's not just hacking. And I think that yeah. kind of plagues into it. Yeah. So, the CCC assemblies, it's basically like this giant hall. And they have, like, I want to say, like, 100 tables. Or, like, 100 areas, rather. So, there's, like, groups of tables. And then you can uh, reserve. Like, it's, I think it's free. Uh, you just, like, book, like, uh, an area at the at the assembly area. And then, you know, you can put your stuff there while you go to talks or go to other assemblies and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, the assemblies I thought was really cool. Uh, the talks were good. The one thing, though, was that the questions uh, I noted weren't... They were pretty bad for some reason. Because I remember you saying that, like, when you gave a talk there, you found the questions were actually pretty good. Yeah, at least, CCC. at least the questions that kind of came up um, after the talk. So, you did the talk... There were, so when I, uh, when we kind of had the official Q&A, like while still on stage, uh, I had one issue, one guy couldn't quite understand his accent, but I kept trying to understand what I was asking. He was asking me about a piece of software that I had never heard of called NetSorb, which I guess is useful for doing some network RE. Um, actually sounded kind of interesting to take a look at, but um, I couldn't understand what he was saying. So I ended up wasting a bunch of time on that. But in the kind of, after discussion so step off down the stage some people come up to ask some more questions that's where like there's a really good discussion really good questions it's kind of in that period okay yeah i mean 
some of the questions like i remember in previous years too because i i watched some ccc talks you know live streamed or uh, archived obviously and like i don't know the questions this year just seem to be like uh at a lower level than what i remember um addressing something in chat um Mano cherry I, th I hope i'm saying your name right uh saying big conferences really should have someone write and filter questions to prevent that um i i think part of the problem is it's it's pretty like it's live right so people are going up to the microphones and asking them immediately i think if you start trying to like filter the questions um that can kind of impact that and cause delays in the questioning period which would kind of suck it can um, but it can also speed it up so i've seen that with debates actually where you kind of have some q a at the end uh so yeah you have people there's mentioned in chat there have people queue up before the talk ends other other things having them write their questions down um only allowing one question to know back and forth i mean the back and forth can be nice and can be very useful but at the same time if you do limit it there basically there are a lot of things that can go a lot better if you have you know uh, somebody without, you know, much of an accent or a bit more of an understandable accent. I mean, obviously not everybody's, I mean, some of the talks are in German too. So, I mean, it kind of goes the other way too. Yeah. I mean, one other thing I have with that is if the person who's vetting the questions isn't familiar with the subject matter or very familiar with it, they might not be able to filter the questions as well. But, well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, to actually have them filter them out, but just, you know, have somebody else maybe be the one reading them. Um, yeah. You know, and then, you know, as a speaker, you could basically say, like, you know, that's not relevant or something. Like, you can basically reject a question if you want to. Uh, and yeah. I mean, it does cause problems. So that's where, that's where, like, actually approaching the speaker afterwards is more useful. If you do want to have that back and forth, if you want to have a more in-depth thing. Uh, you know, afterwards, you're able to approach speakers, you're able to ask those follow-up questions. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned something with, like, some of the talk talks being in German, which actually reminded me of something I forgot uh, that I should bring up. Uh, one thing that's cool, I don't know if they had it in previous years, but this year they had, like, a live translation mumble for the German talks. So English-speaking people could go to the German talks and then join the mumble on their phone, and they could actually get, like, a live translation of the talk. Uh, it was really neat, and I think I don't think I've ever heard of like anywhere else really doing that. So I I don't know how good it was. I didn't try it. Um, you know my I had some really bad jet lag, so I missed some of the talks. Like I did, I missed some of the English talks. Never mind the German ones. But um, yeah, I heard from some people that it was like really good, and uh, I thought that was cool too. Um, do you remember hearing about that in previous years, or is that something new? Do you know? Um, I remember hearing about something like that. I don't remember if it was actually at CCC or not, so I can't say with any confidence. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the other big thing that was happening there was obviously, you know, the CCC, CTF. Um, I got to meet up with some people, and I tried my hand at it a little bit. I was pretty, you know, I wasn't playing it competitively. I checked out a few challenges on, like, uh, the second last day and on the last day. Uh, and like, I even, I think I got one flag and I didn't submit it. I just wanted to like, check out some of the challenges. Um, it was really hard, uh, teams that were four hours into it or so. And I think only one team, like the leading team had only solved one challenge. Uh, so yeah, there were some really hard challenges in there. Um, some of them were cool. 
uh, I remember there was a heap one uh, that I think I told you a little bit about. So they had like a, you know, they allocated or they had a UAF on the heap, but you had to do like a heap chunk fake doing like a house of spirit style attack. I didn't solve it, but it seemed like a pretty cool challenge. There were others. Yeah, though, I that... do remember you talking about that one. I mean, I, I'm a fan of seeing the, you know, old heap stuff, all the house of. All the house of attacks and all of that. I mean, I I like to recommend that uh, uh, the paper Malloc Malficarium and Days Malficarium, uh, yeah. which are kind of the papers covering that. And oh no, I've it way back in the day when that paper when uh, Malloc Malficarium first dropped. Like that was kind of an eye opener paper for me. So I mean, I love hearing you know about the different heap attacks actually, you know, still being used because a couple of them are still in play yeah i mean i'll be honest um I, I don't really do too many heap attacks i mostly go for like i don't attack the allocator itself i guess as much uh so i might retroactively go back and try to solve that challenge uh because i think it could be like a cool learning experience you know it could be useful later on so maybe maybe stream it no i don't know about that but uh yeah i thought the, the cts stuff was was pretty cool uh overall and i think I heard some good feedback on it. Uh, people generally liked it. Uh, there was one, I want to say, Israeli team that like blew everyone else out of the water. Though I think their score was like somewhere around twelve thousand, and the next, like the second team, had like six thousand or something. Like they had more than double the score of like the next best team. It was insane how good they were. Um, I'm trying to remember the team name, but I, I can look up uh, quickly on CTF time. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of crazy, like how hard the CTF was, and then you just see this one team kind of blowing ahead, uh, and that oh, Paston. So I've heard some from some people that were attending, like they're a team that's done good at CCC in the past. Uh, they've kind of like used that as their like DefCon qualifying event. I guess that's where they pour all their resources into in terms of CTF. Um, but yeah, so overall, uh, I, I like the conference. I think I will be going again uh, next year. Uh, one thing I won't miss though. And one thing that's going to suck every time I go there is the flight time. Uh, ten, I, It was around like 10 hours or 11 hours combined for me between two flights. Uh, man, it was brutal uh, with like how much it really messed me up time-wise. And then you also have to consider the time for CCC in terms of the year. It's, you know, it's after Christmas. It's like 27th, I think. So I had to fly out the day after Christmas, and then I arrived the 27th. So I was operating on, like, uh, probably, like, 30, 30 plus hours without sleep. And, I, man, it just messed me up. But, like, yeah, outside of, like, the plane stuff and the jet lag, I, I, CCC was really cool, and I think I'll be going again next year. Um, yeah, I mean, I like the conference. The main reason I haven't been able to go is because I do some stuff kind of right over that period. I mean... Kind of the holiday period, there is a rough time to, you know, just fly over to Europe and fly back. I usually am kind of occupied from, like, the 28th to the 1st. Yeah. But, I mean, otherwise, like I said, I I do like the conference. I Part of that does have to do, as like I mentioned earlier, just with the wider audience that pulls in and the wider topics that it'll pull in. It'll pull in something related but softer topics so like privacy stuff and things like that which some some of the more technical or technically oriented conferences just don't do 
it has a lot more like meta and political discussion, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the biggest thing for CCC that like the reason I probably liked it was when I went to DEFCON last year, it was insanity. I think there was like 32,000 people. Yeah, CCC uh, isn't anywhere near as big. No, I think uh, I heard a figure somewhere around 15,000. Yeah, but CCC is the older of the two. Oh, it is, yeah. Uh, it's 10 years older, I think, exactly. Because this was 36 C3, and last year was DEFCON? No, last year was 27, so it's not exactly 10 years. Um, but, like, yeah, it was it was a very big center. It was the Messe, uh, and... You know, for that amount of people, it was perfect. You know, there was lots of, there was people, but, like, you were able to move without, you know, being packed like sardines in a can in the hallways. So, that was really nice about it. Uh, and that is one thing, too, like, to be fair, that is one thing that's kind of a guarantee with CCC, is because of the way they do ticket sales, it's a lot more controlled. Uh, whereas with DEFCON, it's obviously, you know, cash at the door, uh, line up at LineCon, and then you can just get as many people in there, you know, um, as possible. Whereas CCC, they drop them in stages and they can control it a lot better. So yeah, overall, uh, nice, good thoughts at CCC. Uh, so I, I guess we'll, we'll move on to some news cause I don't have too much more to add on that. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to ask was, do you think you'll be able to try to make it next year? See? Sorry. Um, I wouldn't make any promises on that. In fact, if I were to, it would be another kind of whirlwind uh, trip over there. Like I mentioned, the last time I was there, like I spent less than 24 hours in country. Part of that was due to getting held up at customs, missing my connecting flight, which only left once a day. So I had to wait 24 hours. So I would have been there <laughs> closer to 48 instead of closer to 24. But no, I, I mean... The likely case is I won't make CCC, but I am hoping to hit up a few, you know, more North American conferences this year. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason was I was thinking of doing like a a day zero assembly next year at CCC, but uh, if you're not able to go, then no, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Talk about that closer to that. Uh, one question I'll address from chat before we move on to news was uh, which is closer? Uh, Vegas for me is about a six hour flight, so Vegas is closer. Um, yeah, so Vegas is a little bit closer. All right. So in terms of news, uh, the first thing is kind of heartbreaking. It's, uh, it's Python 2.7 or Python 2 in general. Uh, it's, it's, it's going away, dude. There's, they're sunsetting it. Uh, so yeah, for those of you who don't know, you know, Python, <laughs> it'd be hard not to know, I guess. Python 2 has been trying to, they've been trying to like phased out for a little while, uh, a lot of people have been reluctant to upgrade to Python 3. I actually have been making the upgrade. Uh, all the scripts that I've written recently, if possible, I've been writing in Python 3. Uh, it, it is a lot easier now than it was probably a year or two ago, because there were a lot of like modules and stuff uh, that that broke on Python 3, or they didn't want to update yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that just didn't go and support it. I mean... Maybe I'm mistaken here, so I haven't been a heavy user of Pwn Tools, but I feel like they were a little bit slow to update Pi 3 also. Yep, they were. Actually, uh, I was going to bring that up because uh, when I was trying to do some of the CTF challenges at CCC, I was trying to use Pwn Tools on Python 3 and it actually didn't work. Uh, I kept encountering issues, so okay, I had to Okay, maybe use there's Python a fork 2. then that does Python 3. 
So I'm yeah, pretty sure there's be. support on it. Maybe it's not officially through them. But uh but th that's at least one thing I remember, you know, definitely encountering with that. But yeah, I I've kind of similar the last couple years I've been trying to do most things with Python 3 and you know, it's it's improved, you know, definitely in the last like 6 6 to 12 months for sure. Yeah. Uh that said, I mean they are sunsetting it. It's not dead yet. Uh there is going to be a um April kind of last release. Okay, I was going to say is there an official kill date past the sunset? Okay, there is so around April. I didn't see that in there actually. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was here or if it's in Check Python news. Yeah. But I mean, uh in general, I think I I think uh the grace period was was very generous. I think it's fair that they want people to, you know, go to Python 3 now and that they're kind of, you know, starting to finally kill off Python 2 just cuz like maintaining both of them does kind of suck and, you know, kind of hinders the progress they can make on 3. So um, yeah, so I just pulled off kind of the blog page there, which Python 2 series to be retired by April 2020. Kind of where yeah, I got okay. that is there being kind of that last, uh, I guess, last major version will be released in April, as they say. Honestly, I mean, I, I will miss not being able to do print space and what I want to print. <laughs> yeah. But... You know, I basically, I mean, my solution on that has been the overall better thing. I've just been using, you know, logging everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder, though, if there are going to be people who use Python even, or Python 2, even though it's, like, outdated. Oh, or of course there are. Dead. I mean, there's still people probably running Windows XP. There's stuff in okay, Python true. 2 that just works, and people are just going to keep that working environment working. Yeah, I should read that. I shouldn't have said, like, if people will. There will be some people who will. But I'm, I wonder how many people will. Like, I think most things will move to Python 3. Uh, if they haven't already. So, yeah. That was just something I was kind of thinking about. But yeah, Or, and... you know, Golang or something will pop up in its place. I mean, there's... I don't know, I, I'm kind of reminded with, uh, what was it, Perl 6? Kind of had some significant changes people weren't too happy with. I mean, there's still kind of a lot of people that I think it was Perl six. Um, I haven't been a heavy Perl user in quite a while, but um, I mean, there's definitely kind of the chance of that where people either just stick with the older version or move right away from Python two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I am a big fan of GoLang. I'll uh, I'll shill for that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, kind of end of an era there uh, with uh, with Python two. Yeah, uh, finally definitely. Sunsetting. So, uh, Kali, Kali Linux, the favorite meme of the, uh, of our industry, I guess. <laughs> so, um, they put out a, a bit of a news thing saying that New Year's is a good time for major changes. And in that spirit, they've announced a major change in the security model for Kali Linux, uh, for the 2020.1 release. And that, uh, that overhaul is default non-root user. So yeah, definitely, definitely a good move. I mean, for the longest time, you know, I always hear about, you know, kids are wanting to install. And I, I realize it's not just kids, but I'll use that anyhow. But, uh, you know, installing Kali is their main operating system. It, it is not 
generally not a good idea to do that. And one of the big reasons that I've always pointed to is the fact that you've got that root user by default, and defaults matter. People will use the default. Uh, one of the first comments on this chain, actually, uh, or at least one of the first ones, yeah, that's great, but if somebody does not know how to create a user, maybe they shouldn't be using Kali, which is definitely true, but just because it's so much easier to not go and create one, there are a lot of people who just use the default, use what's there. Um... So, I mean, just having a sane default, I think, matters, even if, you know, people should know to create their own user anyhow. Yeah. I mean, I do kind of wonder, like, you're right that secure defaults matter. Um, and that, you know, obviously, if people are rolling this, like, Kali is their main OS for some dumb reason, uh, you know, that default non-root user is good in terms of security. But... I feel like that's almost encouraging people to use it as more of a desktop than what it's actually for. Because, like, Kali is more, like, when I think of Kali, I think of, like, you know, sticking it on a uh, USB live stick. And, you know, if you're a pen tester, taking it with you and using it on the road. You know, it's not, it's not like a desktop main daily driver OS. Um, yeah, but I think they're trying to push towards that because that is simply kind of where a lot of people are using it. Um, if you actually kind of read their news posts there, they kind of go into a little bit more detail about why uh, why they've made that change. And if I recall, I just kind of scanned over this. But, I mean, it sounds like they are trying to move towards making it a more practical system to just install. They don't encourage it, but they, yeah, here it is. While we don't encourage people to run Kali as their day-to-day -day operating system over the last few years, more and more users have started to do so. Um, even if they are not using it to do penetration testing full-time. Apparently including members of the Kali development team, although kind of makes sense that they, you know, dog feed it, so <laughs> yeah. that's cool. Yeah. I mean, um, I'll hijack this news as a little bit of an opportunity to talk a little bit about Kali. Maybe we can go into a more in-depth discussion later. But um, I I'm not sure what the obsession is with Kali. It's just... It's a Linux distro with a bunch of tools pre-installed that most of them you'll probably not use anyway. No, uh, but I don't know I've... why people have a problem with like setting up something like Ubuntu and just installing the tools they need as they need them. The thing is, installing the tools you need as you need it requires effort. It requires work to do the research to figure out what tools do you need. And to be clear, I actually what I recommend for people is not to use Kali. At the very best, just you know use. Uh, the Kali tool list if you really need to. Uh, that And install what you need as you're saying, like to do that. Like wh basically what you're saying is what I recommend people do is manually install stuff, know kind of what they're doing. Um, uh, as uh, I'm not even going to try and pronounce your name, I'm <laughs> sorry. But uh, yeah, for CTFs, like there's a ton of cases where Kali is useful. It's like either in a VM, quickly spin it up use it on CTFs. It's got all the tools there. It's great kind of in the professional context, as Spectre said too, where, you know, you're rolling into a client site, they're going to provide you a machine, you know, maybe you're doing an engagement where you're pretending to be like a new employee who's already in there, who's going to be a rogue employee, something like that, or, you know, social engineering your way in, you're going to get a computer. So you pop in the disk, 
granted, a lot of machines now don't even seem to do the disk drive, so you pop in USB, but you, know, you get that idea. You use that locally. There's a ton of use cases for Kali, uh, but we're definitely just talking about why people are doing it as a local install main operating system. Uh, you know, dual booting, I think, is a little bit different, too. I always hated dual booting, personally. Really? Uh, okay, this is actually the first I've heard about this, so I'm curious. Well, Why just, don't you like dual booting? Just because of the whole context switch. It's not that I have any issue with people who dual boot, but personally, it's just you've got that whole mental switch, you've got that whole, you know, context switch going on when you turn the computer off, turn it back on, you boot into whatever else you want to use. Like, needing to do that whole process. Uh, so mm -hmm. I always just favor VMs for that because it's just, it's more efficient to me. Uh, but what, just jumping back, what I want to get at is I tend to recommend people just figure out what tools they need via research. It takes longer. It's more effort. Uh, but the key thing that you get out of that is you know what tools are available and you know what tools um, you're actually going to use and how to use them. You end up doing a lot of that research. You end up learning a lot more when you figure out that instead of just going, okay, what does Kali have and what's already here for me to use? Uh, so I tend to recommend kind of what you were saying before with why can't people just go and install it. But to answer kind of that question, it's easier. You've got everything there. You can feel like a hacker. You can think you know everything. <laughs> and let's be honest here. That is a big reason. Kali is the hacker distro. You run Kali if you're a hacker. There are a ton of people who know next to nothing about security, but they've heard that, they see that, and so they go ahead and install Kali. That's definitely a huge user base. You don't tend to hear about people running Kali as their main operating system, you know, as like a professional pen tester who's just using it all the time. No, they usually have their own environment set up. Yeah. At least so, that's I mean, my experience. I'm sure somebody out there will jump in there and be like, no, I'm totally a professional pen tester <laughs> and I have Kali's my main system. Or, you know, the same things can be said about like, you know, Parrot OS and, you know, Black Ubuntu and all, like all the other options that are out there. Same thing can be said. Kali's just the most popular. Yeah. I mean, one thing I was thinking of while you were saying that was like, um, Part of what you lose when you don't do research into the tools and, like, what you want to do is you're quite, like, if you use Kali and you're just like, okay, I'll use this tool since Kali has it, you're kind of limited and you could end up using, like, an inferior tool for what you want to do compared to, like, something that could be, like, a hundred times better, but you didn't want to put the research in to actually go find it. Uh, so that is one thing that yeah, I was kind that's of thinking a good point. of when you were talking about that. Um, in regards to dual booting, jumping back a little bit, uh, yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, VMs have gotten, VM technology has gotten a lot better over the last, you know, decade or so. And I don't think there's much of a reason to dual boot anymore. Um, well, I mean, VMs sometimes you just need that hardware access. I mean, there are certain tools that, especially that work kind of lower on the network stack, for example, or need that lower level access that, you know, you just can't pass through to the VM. Definitely happens. It exists. It's a reason to dual boot if you do that. Yeah. So moving on to offensive security, uh, which we've talked about before, uh, they've made some policy changes. And uh, was this just made today? Because I know we were a bit late yeah, on this so topic. I just got the email this morning. And okay. that's the thing. We don't have any link here or any sufficient link. I mean, I've linked in offensive security, their main website, but... 
Uh, yeah, they made an exam policy change, uh, which, I mean, from their email, which I won't show, but uh, they basically said, at Offensive Security, we believe that one's health and well-being is essential to trying harder, their favorite tagline. Recently, we've noticed the trend of students rushing to retake their exam upon failing, which inevitably leads to frustration, burnout, and a reduced success rate. Uh, so I didn't even realize they had a cooldown policy on their exam retakes. But um, basically, if you fail once, you have to right now you have to wait one week. Uh, on after your second fail, you have to wait two weeks. After your third fail, you have to wait three weeks. After your fourth and beyond, you have to wait six weeks. The new policy, though, what they've brought in, um, is after your first fail, you've got to wait four weeks. Second fail, eight weeks. And three and beyond, you're waiting 12 weeks between attempts. That is... That's that is harsh. Quite a, yeah, that's... That's crazy. Like... I, I mean, know. so I think it's fair, to be honest. Like, I do think it's fair, but that's definitely a very harsh change to make. Um, I remember a little while back, I don't know if we talked about it, but... They did in, um, increase the exam costs. And it was a pretty significant change. Also, so I feel like they were trying to kind of curb these retakes when they made that change too. And that didn't work. People were still willing to throw money at it. So they've kind of done this. And I think it will help with people kind of judging whether or not they're ready for the exam or not. So I mean, think... the ex... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, do you think it'll add pressure though? That people are going to be more nervous and stuff doing the actual exam, knowing that if they fail, they have to wait a month before they can do another retry or longer. It'll like, add some pressure, but it'll also be like, okay, well now I've got the time to keep studying. I know what I need. I mean, so the exams are definitely not something you should brute force your way through. But yeah, I mean, with the first one being four weeks, that's, that is rough. I mean, especially because there, I'm sure there are a lot of people who do the exam, just barely fail, and, you know, pass it on their second time, pretty much no problem. Yeah. It's also, though, I mean, I don't know, hearing like three, four plus failures, like <laughs> I, I don't mean to, uh, you know, just sound arrogant with this, but I feel like, you know, they're missing, you're missing the point. If you're actually doing that, like I've heard of people kind of hitting the exam with like zero points at the end and okay, that zero points I could actually kind of understand. So, but uh, it means zero points time after time. No, I like, I don't get that. At that point, it's like, you're just trying to memorize the steps to do something without actually trying to understand the concepts. Um, so the same with like brute force and all that, like, it's not something you're going to be able to brute force. You need to understand the concepts that they're trying to teach. Um, you know, the key thing is they always, like, all the exams are, like, I'll, I'll even say, like, the exams are, uh, hard. And that was tough for me to admit, but, <laughs> but, uh, like, I mean, there, there's some difficulty in the exams. I have, so I've only done the OSWE, the, uh, web app penetration testing one, and OSCE, um, so I haven't done OSCP, which is the most popular one. So I can't comment on how difficult those are. But all of the offset ones, like in my experience, they all had something in them that actually required you to show you understood. Not just kind of how to test for the issue, not just how to 
uh, do the steps to exploit an issue, but um, actually have to understand the fundamental issue and how kind of that manifests and why it manifests. And then when you kind of get the exam, you know, the exam is going to have something, it's something that was taught to you. It's going to be the same issue that you know, but that root kind of attack vector that requires that kind of deeper understanding, or as I like the term, grok, the intuitive understanding, uh, it kind of requires that. It's the same attack, just a different manifestation. Uh, in both of the exams that I've done, it's kind of had that. That's where I'm saying it's, you know, it can be hard uh, because it requires you kind of actually understand what's going on. Um tackling one thing out of chat there oh i heard the web app one was harder uh the web app one is different because it covers something that's really difficult to teach the uh, oswe certification test ends up requiring you to do a lot more of discovery and code auditing which is something you kind of get a feel for with experience it's not something that like you could just be taught a bunch of tricks on how to audit source code in fact, they actually do a couple things in the exam to make it so even if you know a few of the tricks, you're just not, it's not going to help you out. Um, Interesting. Okay. I don't want to go into too much detail with that, but they do some things like that just, I guess, to throw, you know, to, to cause some issues for you. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not sure if I'd say the web app one was harder than OSC or OSC was harder. They were very different. They're testing different skill sets. Oh, yeah, like you couldn't just do grep to do as your example out of chat. Um, uh, I mean, I kind of like that now that you say that, that like uh, you said that they like try to design the exam around preventing people from just memorizing things. And because, you know, that's how a lot of at least are, one question like will be school, like that. Like, yeah, so I, I kind of like that. And I, I haven't really heard that before. So that that kind of. Makes me a little bit more interested in the offensive security stuff. Yeah, and so um, I talk about kind of the exam, just kind of out of chat there. I talk about the OSWE exam during episode... It must have been episode 11. Um, I it has OSWE... Uh, actually, I think it was our last one before we left. Oh, okay. Uh, but it has <laughs> OSWE in the title. Um, if you want to kind of hear more about my thoughts, I give a decent review of kind of the course, the exam there, uh, because I ended up passing the exam, like the first week that it was out, I had, I had passed the exam. So I was able to kind of get on pretty early with having some comments on it. Humble brag. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just mean, so you can kind of go back right to that point and find our older episode. Yeah. So overall, uh, thoughts on the policy change? You think it's better? You know what? Because they've had issues, obviously with people just brute forcing the exam, I think it'll one kind of save people money. They're not after getting a bunch of money, which was maybe the thought you'd have when they increase the exam costs. So I think this is like, no, like they care more about, you know, the quality of people coming out of it. And I mean, they've made a lot of changes trying to prevent cheating and stuff too. Honestly, I mean, I hate the four weeks. It seems like a while. It, it is probably better overall though. Like I think it's a good change. So you think it should be increased, but maybe not to the degree it was. No, I, I think the degree it is, you know, it's going to make people question whether or not they're ready a little bit more. Okay. I think, at least if they're aware of it. If they're not aware of it, it won't matter, but... <laughs> okay. All right, cool. 
So uh, there was something that came out. I saw this. This was a bit uh, LOL worthy. Um, <laughs> there was Caterpillar padlocks. Somebody discovered that all of them use the same key. Yeah, so, so this is lockpicking lawyer, not just somebody. Uh, decent channel. I mean, 1.15 million subscribers. I've watched a few of the videos. I don't watch it regularly. Uh, but it's enjoyable content. That said, I don't totally disagree that it's... Uh, or I don't totally agree with you on... Or I don't even agree with lockpicking lawyer on this one, actually. Uh, just come, so one of his comments there quoting the video here is bottom line if something is valuable enough to be secured then you probably should be using a different padlock i mean all of these are basically keyed the same in this case i would kind of agree with that being a feature not a bug really um okay. so now hear me out on that obviously you know you <laughs> wouldn't expect that but cat is you know really construction companies is a big thing a lot of people, so a lock like this would be used where it's a lot of people need access to something. Um, and you just need some sort of security barrier to prove like intentionality or liability. I mean, the thing that kind of led me down thinking about that is just, I remember as a kid, I used to spend summers out on my grandparents' farm. All their John Deere tractors had the same key. Tractors themselves, same key. Um, and that just kind of comes down to the way in which people are operating around that where several people just have the key and need that accident rather than getting something cut because people lose it whatever it's just you know in, in a construction site especially like see a lot of people need it you know they're using that padlock in there i think it's just a niche application i think there are obviously better padlocks if you have something that's valuable enough to be secure uh but i think this does more just you know, you want to, you don't want somebody accidentally doing something, accidentally wandering into your uh, construction site. But I mean, if they want to intentionally get in, they can use the key or they can jump the fence. Like odds are the lock isn't the strongest protection there anyhow. Yeah. Uh, but it proves that intentionality and kind of keeps them from some of the liability. Yeah, I was going to say, thinking about it more, when you're talking about like, locks like this if somebody really wants to steal something they're probably not even gonna lock pick it or use a key that like or buy a lock just to get a similar key they're just gonna cut the lock <laughs> like you know it is more of like what you were saying like yeah i mean i don't know what the if that's like hard and steel or something like if there's something that actually makes that uh more difficult to do with this lock i would imagine not since they are keying it all the same but yeah the Keying the lock is, or using a key on the lock or whatever, probably isn't the attack method that's going to be used. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's 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 a good point. Uh, something I hadn't really thought of. I still feel like. Yeah, so well, in yeah, chat, so we had kind of this knockbox linked. Okay. Which looks like they're all their key box. So it looks like they store keys and they're all keyed the same. Um, I'm just looking at it right now, so um whoever i'd link that definitely feel free to tell me if i'm misunderstanding something but that's what it looks like it's saying okay um, so is and that, in that well else? so i would say that seems like you know you're literally protecting a key if you're trying to protect a key you probably don't want all of them to be the same like everywhere yeah i don't know that 
Although that is, though, another case where you probably have a reason for a lot of people needing access to it. So it, maybe it does kind of fit that niche, but... Yeah, I mean, I, it reminds me, I used to work at a transport company, right? Um, and there was, a, like, a safe box with, like, all the keys for all the trucks. Um, and then that was behind, like, a master key. So it's kind of similar to that, I'm guessing. Because yeah, that, like, that's, that's, that's what that's it seems like. Um, that, that's what it seems like from this presentation. Looks like it makes mention of, you know, only your fire department holds the key. Obviously, anybody can go and buy the key. Or I assume so. I mean, I know you can buy the key rings of a lot of the default keys to things. So, like, that exists. I feel like that's a place where it just shouldn't be getting used. I mean, because a key is something to protect, even if a lot of people need access to it. Yeah. I, at the same time, I mean, to kind of counter myself on that, your, uh, you can make you the know, same argument here. Your construction equipment's probably something to protect too, even though a lot of people need access to it. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, obviously, I know it's kind of the way things are done in that industry, or at least, you know, like I said, within farming. And I, I believe, like, a lot of the CAD equipment's also just keyed the same. I think he even mentions that the ignition lock is keyed the same. So, I don't know. I mean, my initial thought, like I said, kind of comes down to, you know, the industry's kind of found itself in that niche of needing something to show intentionality, prevent, you know, liability. So, I guess it's one of those things where it's just like, it's, it's kind what of they do. Maybe way. they shouldn't be doing that. Exactly. But the corner was already cut, so they are. Yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. I'll, I'll have to maybe step back on my position a little bit there it's seeing it being used with the key i get that argument that's that's a good point i'll i'll say i mean maybe i'm not wrong but let's, i'm probably not right either <laughs> okay yeah i mean that isn't an, an interesting like a good point of view to have though that i haven't really seen uh many people mention is that factor of like you know there are going to be a lot of people on a construction site that need access to it. Construction stuff is already inefficient as it is. So, you know, like it's, it's one of those things, like you said, it's just been done that way. And then that's, you know, the corner's already been cut. Uh, and they're probably not going to change that, you know, it, even if Caterpillar uh, re refactors their locks, that they're all different, different keyed, the construction sites might just go to a different lock manufacturer that uh, keys them all the same, you know? Um, and like I said, if somebody really wants in, they'll just cut the lock anyway. So yeah, I think that, that covers everything on that topic. Uh, getting into some more sketchy stuff though. Uh, we have the shitcoin wallet. Uh, so there was, there was some posts going around. Uh, apparently there was a wallet extension for, uh, Chrome, uh, called yeah. the shitcoin wallet. Well, I mean, that name, how do you even yeah. trust it with that name? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Uh, pretty pretty obvious that it's sketchy already um so yeah it was a downloadable chrome extension which is another thing where like if you're using a cryptocurrency wallet don't use it as a chrome extension <laughs> get an actual wallet even better if you can like if you're actually serious about crypto memorize get a cold storage nope memorize Me okay if memorize you're serious <laughs> memorize <laughs> but yeah like don't use a, an extension that's just dumb um, so yeah, somebody uh, named Terry Denley uh, 
he took a look at the extension and found that it was injecting JavaScript. And it was, I think he said it was obfuscated, which is kind of a red flag. Uh, generally, <laughs> generally, if there's obfuscated JavaScript getting injected by an extension, it's not a good sign. Uh, and he found that it was actually trying to send off the password and private key to a domain. Uh, it was erc20wallet.tk, I think it was. Everybody um, go and visit that? Yep, everybody send your uh, information <laughs> to that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like really, not much of a surprise. The name com back, combined with the fact that it's a browser extension uh, should be like a major red flag to anybody who wants to deal with crypto in any like serious capacity. Uh, and I'll just kind of hijack this news topic to say that like you really should do a lot of research into the wallets you're going to use before you use them. Um, like I'm not huge into crypto, honestly. I have some problems with it. I don't like it very much. But yeah, I I'm not a crypto user myself. Yeah, I mean, I have used it in the past, and when I did use it, I did a lot of research into like the wallet I was using uh, and all that kind of stuff to make sure that like you know it was trusted generally across the community. Um, uh, so I will say the extension has been removed off of the uh, Chrome web uh, app store. So you can't get it any... Well, you can get it because when I went to their website to do some research into it, they actually have it download to a, an installer. But uh, from the Chrome web store, at least, it's been removed. So, you know, a bit of a bit of a happy ending. Yeah, I guess, I, well, I will mention here also, um, you mentioned it tried to steal the credentials. Basically, if you created a wallet and it tried to steal the credentials, but it also tried to steal the credentials if you logged into other wallets. Uh, that is one thing I didn't hear you mention there. Is it would try to log in if you uh, had like my Ether wallet, um, IDEX, which were Neo Tracker extensions. If you had their, if you had those extensions installed, it also tried to steal credentials and private keys from there. Uh, so it wasn't yeah, just their me. own. Uh, I mean, they obviously tried to steal anything made with shitcoin, but if you're using something else, they also tried to steal it from there. Uh, they only seem to have six hundred twenty-five users, so. I mean, that's a lot of people, actually, but... If you're one of those 625 people, uh, good luck. <laughs> uh, to do more research next time, I guess. So, uh, yeah. We, we don't talk about crypto often, but when we do, it's often in a bit of a negative light. And the wallet yeah. stuff is part of the reason why it's so easy to put out malicious wallets. And people, you know, they hear about crypto, it's like, oh, this is a cool new thing. I'm just going to go download this wallet. Let me just search the Chrome web store for a crypto wallet. And then they just download the first one they see and then they get screwed. And it's like, you know, that's one of the problems with crypto is that uh, I mean, it's, it's that too can easy be... to, to mess with people on it. They're like basically anything kind of digital of value like that. You can probably run into similar issues. Oh, but if we talk about other things that use real money. Oh, uh, I know. Like, like I you know, struggled like to come up with a really good comparison. Yeah, because like it's money. It, it is like or it's significant money. Yeah. So, yeah, that is one point that I, like, don't like with crypto. Uh, so moving on to some exciting stuff. Uh, there was the Edge uh, Chromium. Yeah, like the Chromium coming. version of Edge. So, like, the new Edge browser. Yeah, I call it Edgium. So, Edgium, uh, <laughs> new potential RCE. And I actually didn't notice, this is the first one you said, I think? Yeah, or at least that's kind of what's mentioned in here. I didn't actually go and verify that. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but um, yeah, it's a it's a neat, it's neat a cool attack. Of yeah, um, it's it's a little bit older. It's from Christmas Eve, 
Uh, but you know, obviously, we took quite a big break, so we we yeah we missed two episodes. Yeah, so it's fine that we cover some older stuff, especially like something like this. This is pretty significant, especially if that claim is true that it is the first uh, bounty claimed. So this was actually a series of three bugs, um, and combined, those three bugs rewarded them forty thousand dollars. Uh, in uh, Microsoft's bounty program, I do, I do have a bit of a weird thing that I notice. So they say that uh, Microsoft is offering. Uh, they talk a little bit about the bounty program, and they say this means a single eligible bug in this new browser could be worth up to thirty thousand dollars. Which I think we we actually did cover. I think we covered the Microsoft bounty payouts in a previous yeah. episode before. Um, so they say that there's a maximum payout of thirty k per bug. But he has some pretty serious bugs here, and he didn't. He only got half that. He only, the highest payout he got was fifteen thousand. Well, so do keep in mind, like he um, he gets to the point of actually, does he go? Yeah, he does inject a message box, right? That's what the final payload did, or was it just the script? I think that's another topic you're thinking of with the message box. Okay. Um. Yeah, I mean that that's possible. I just I just found it weird that like some of these bugs like so, you know, we haven't gotten too much into it yet, but like some of these bugs were in the new ta- new tab page. Um which is pretty significant because the new tab page actually has higher privileges technically in the browser than other pages. They can access more JavaScript functions, more uh, sensitive ones. Um yeah, I just found it weird that like they said that it could be up to thirty k for a single bug, but he seemed to he only got like ten k and fifteen. Oh no! Bugs. If we looked at what it, what the actual payouts are for that, I mean, it's probably you know thirty thousand for getting um, actual code execution, whereas okay. this is your JavaScript and stuff. Because I mean, where it's, I mean, outside of the uh, sandboxes, where I believe this one got to. Now that you mentioned that, I'm thinking of the wrong one. I might have a mistake here. But what I do have here is, you know, it's an XSS, obviously, starting in the new tab page. Um, kind of talks a little bit about how they were exploring it and stuff. And basically, when you access, you know, a new page or access a page frequently, um, you'll notice the in this screenshot here that we've got up, one of those little cards that it loads up. So you visit a site frequently, it gets a little card on your new tab page, so you can click it and go there. Um, in this case, they have a test website that had in the title of the page, you know, a little bold A or what the HTML for it. And turns out it was bold in this card when it gets injected in there. Why? Because of course they're just straight up injecting that HTML right into the new tab page. Um, as Spectre already mentioned there, the new tab page itself is also privileged. Uh, that is, whereas on normal page here, you might have, you know, access to like Chrome.app and, you know, a few other things. Whereas new tab page, it has everything, you know, Bluetooth, Bluetooth private, uh, settings private. It has access to everything because it is a privileged page. So simple XSS leading to what they end up testing because they're trying to find issues that are in Edgium, I guess, what we'll call it. Yep. Um, so they end up finding this Chrome.Q box, which they couldn't find any documentation about, so it seemed to be specific to Edgium. Uh, so it has this Navigate. They kind of looked at the JavaScript for that, and now finding, you know, they send it 
uh, high ID and they send it a null and it ends up crashing with an attempt to read pointer negative one. Which, you know, he goes in to say, like, that looks like a, judging by the crashes, it looks like a pretty exploitable bug in terms of yes. like, memory corruption. Um, that was probably the coolest bug in the article. Um, there was a third bug. It was another XSS in the new tab page. It was through a cookie uh, domain ID. Yeah, it was well, echoed into the page in a script tag and it wasn't sanitized. Yeah, he goes trying to find like a new, I guess, trying to actually exploit his XSS, but in a little bit more of a real world usable way than requiring somebody to like visit your site a bunch of times yeah. to get it in there. Um, and he comes with an actual injection to actually do the navigation call and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the crash one where it tried to access the pointer at negative one was definitely the coolest one. Um, but yeah, that first bug, the XSS and the new tab page, I'm, I'm quite surprised that that even like wasn't caught fairly early at Microsoft, like he even mentioned he found that by accident. Like, that shouldn't be a hard issue to find. And that should be, like, one of the first things you would be looking, f like, thinking I mean, about securely when designing a new tab page, I would think. Like, I it, it depends on where they think the title's coming from, though, too. Um, if they realize it's always coming from, perhaps they thought it was, you know, of open graph. It, like, perhaps it was being provided or probably is being provided to them by some other API and they made the wrong assumption about how that data would be passed to them. Like they might've just asked like, Hey, is this going to be passed to me in, um, is this going to be passed to me as like HTML encoded? Is it going to be passed? Whatever. It's like, Oh yeah, it's going to be, you know, sanitized to so just pop it in there. Um, and then point. obviously being found in testing, you know, yeah, it should have been noticed a little bit earlier on. Like that is, a slightly obvious it's a little bit off the way like as a attack vector but at the same time there isn't a lot on your new tab page so it is something kind of obvious like there's nowhere else to look yeah uh, like that's the only thing that's user controlled but it's you know somebody visiting websites it's unlikely to be an attack page too easily uh but yeah so he does find uh, xss or a bit more of a usable XSS or a way to kind of exploit it. Um, uh, using a cookie being created there. Uh, later on is his third bug. Um, in terms of the values outfit, like I think part of it probably came down to the fact that he didn't, uh, he got the crash, but he didn't actually go and show it was exploitable or actually do like, uh, he got minus one, which perhaps is only uh, air code, for example. Um, you know, Xerox FFF, you know, being minus one. Which is unfortunate, because I think it would have been really, like, fun to try to exploit a bug like that in a fairly new browser. And it could have made for a, a really interesting write-up. Yeah, but um, I mean, not everybody does that type stuff, too. So. Oh, that's absolutely true. I mean, browser exploitation is very hard at the binary level. Um, that being said, like, maybe, maybe somebody could, you know, try to weaponize that. I don't know if I'll look into it. But uh, like you know, trying to exploit that and see if you could do something with it, that'd be that'd be pretty cool. Get a outdated Edgium version and see uh, where you could take it, uh, just for fun. Do like a write up on it, because um, you know browser internals are always fun to look at. And while they're mostly the same across you know most browsers, um, Edgium 
this article even tries to go into some stuff that's you know it does differently from other browsers because i i don't think we mentioned it but microsoft will actually only pay out for issues that are specific to edgeem code so if you find something in shared code that's overlapped between chrome and edge uh or edgeem i should say uh, then, then google microsoft, pays out google pays out but you won't get anything from microsoft yeah so that's why he was looking at some of these components um Overall, yeah, it was a really cool write-up because it's something new, uh, and I, I don't know if Edgium's going to pick up. I don't know if it's going to become, like, if it's going to break into the browser market and uh, kind of impact on Chrome's market share. I don't know if it's able to do that at this point. Um, maybe because of some of the stupid stuff that's been going on with Chrome that we've talked about in past episodes, but uh, yeah, it's it's cool. It's a new field of, you know, it's it's kind of a new thing that's happening, so... Uh, it's some novel stuff in here. Uh, so yeah, definitely wanted to, you know, shout that out a little bit. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's definitely kind of a fun thing to read. Like I enjoyed reading this up, just the type of issue there. Not really what you think of with the browser exploitation. Like, yeah, definitely good little write up. And it's very accessible too. Yep. So Keen Security Lab uh, did a write up on exploiting the Wi-Fi stack on tesla model s's uh so we love talking about uh, smart cars and stuff on this show <laughs> but uh yeah so they've mentioned for the last few years they've been looking into tesla cars uh at a bunch of different components but this article they focus on a wi-fi stack which is called parrot apparently uh internally i think uh so they talk about what they uncovered uh doing research on that and some bugs that they discovered as well um so they discovered two bugs. Uh, one was a bug in, in the firmware in uh, something they call the add traffic stream mechanism. Um, and the other one was a bug in the SDIO interface. I actually, I don't have it in my notes what that actually stands for. I don't know if they clarify that in the article. I don't think they do. So I kind of want to mention there that it, I, maybe I was misunderstanding what they're doing here. But... <laughs> um. The second issue, like, I mean, they got a CVE for it, so I think I'm misunderstanding. Uh, but let's jump back there. Um, add traffic stream with traffic specification. You basically tell it, hey, you know, get this traffic stream from this other device. And when the device receives the add traffic stream response from that other device, it just copies that response minus uh, header into a local struct. And then it passes it on to the driver, kernel driver processes it processes ah kernel driver reads it um and when it makes that copy though all it does is response length minus four so whatever you sent it minus four bytes so that's it trying to get rid of the header uh what ends up happening is if you send it a very small frame it'll only contain three bytes so three bytes minus four bytes is minus one byte is a very very large number integer underflow yeah so oh um, uh, that's where you end up being able to do a large copy which basically copies the rest of the heap over into memory um and then their attack kind of sprayed these pointers with that big copy they they talked about a few things that they're going to actually target in their attack or a few options uh what they end up going for is the mcu interrupt and this is where i don't get it sounds like they have, as you were kind of mentioning, the G-Interface SDIO structure. Uh, it sounds like they overwrite some function pointers in there. 
and end up using that and like end up calling that somehow it it just it sounds like it's an extension of this original attack and there's not like a secondary attack except for the fact they were able to overwrite some pointers after their three byte shell code it was written kind of weird. I think you're wrong. I think the second one is a different vulnerability. Oh, I'm almost um, certain it is. I just couldn't figure that out. Yeah, they didn't detail the second bug. Um, they mentioned the function it's in, which is WLAN process CMD response or RESP, but they don't actually include that function in the write-up. I don't know why. It's like they tunneled in on the first one, but then on the second one, they just... I, I don't know if they like forgot or something, but... There's, like, way less detail on the second bug than on the first bug, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, but both of them were heap overflows. One thing I do kind of wonder is that bug you were just detailing, the first one. Well, but they um, mentioned wanting to target <clears throat> and getting something in the stack. Uh, for the yeah, that's vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, for the second one, there can be... Okay, yeah, oh. so that one I did understand a little bit. So what they were saying was this function was called in a lot of places, and I think the overflow was on a pointer that they passed in a function argument. And some places that called this function called it with a stack-allocated buffer, and some of them called it with a heap-allocated buffer. So depending on uh, which vector you hit, you could get a heap overflow or a stack overflow. Yeah, so I got that, but... Um... the stack. But I just I was saying that in response to your mention of it being or both of them being heap. Oh, uh, yeah, that yeah, said, yeah, like I mean, I I could follow this thing through the first one and what they were doing with that uh, really big copy, and then yeah, it's I just kind of lose it from there. Yeah, that's it. The the gist of it, they get they do ultimately get command execution at the kernel level from a remote shell or like remotely. It is really unstable, though. The first bug, they say, has, like, a 25% success rate, and the second one, I think they said, was, like, 10%. So, not not very stable exploits. Um, I do have a few, like, uh, weird things that I noticed in the article. Um, one Typos. of them is... No, no, like, oh, just I questions too. I had. Because, like... Okay, let's say the heap one, right? The first one. Uh, the copy size, right? It was negative one. It was huge. How how were they able to exploit that without like just smashing everything on the heap and just and like causing a crash because of how much shit they corrupt? Well, that's like, the thing. I'm pretty sure they basically did smash everything, and this like I guess I won't say pretty sure, but my thought was that this is all part of one attack, and so they never actually returned control back to the system for it to go and crash because of everything they corrupted. Yeah, it's just weird. Like, it would have been cool, like, if they mentioned if they had a way of, like, uh, interrupting the copy early. Oh, I mean, they did. They do they interrupt. Did? Yeah, they mentioned interrupting the copy. That's why they use the MTC thing, is to interrupt that copy. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, makes sense. Um, and when um, you're talking about the success rate, I just pulled it up here. We've got about 25 success rate to achieve um, code execution with this method. I believe... And I think they talked about the 10 earlier. I think this is when they're deciding between using the MCU interrupts. Yeah, we mainly focus on this third crash in the handler of the MCU interrupts. And that's where the G interface SDIO pointers also mentioned. That's why I was confused by being two separate ones or not. Um, because they mentioned the... Uh, 
uh, G interface SDIO pointer right up here when they're talking about exploiting the MCU interrupt, which is all part of that first um, attack. Yeah. So the other thing that I found a bit weird was they mentioned uh, when they went for the stack overflow attack on the uh, the second bug. Um, obviously, when you're talking about stack overflows, one thing that kind of kills stack overflows in many cases is stack cookies. So it seemed like there was no stack cookies in this case, and that kind of makes sense because later on they note that the way they actually exploit this is just putting shellcode on the stack and executing it, which is another thing that hasn't been, you can't really, haven't been able to do that in many years because of NX. And they say that well, this, this isn't only an runs Linux kernel 2.6. This is, I was going to say this isn't an operating system, but this isn't... This is an embedded little thing. This is the Wi-Fi chip. It's not like your user land thing. It's slow embedded system. But it does run. Like They're known for not what they say. Yeah, I mean, plenty of embedded things do and don't have NX or ASLR. Yeah, um, it's definitely not unheard of. Okay, uh, but there like is this section here. Two point six, which is like, is there a reason that? It has to go so old. Like, that 2.6 is a long time ago. Well, because it doesn't have all the security features. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, m- I more mean, seriously, I, I just, yeah, okay. it's just about the l- lesser performance and all of that. I don't work in the embedded scene, so I can't actually comment. But I did want to mention, in terms of kind of how they do the copy processing and uh, don't, like, smash everything, there is a section here that kind of talks about the whole process. That I've just kind of pulled up there, but, um, and from chatting in person, I'm not going to try and say your name, uh, 2.6 being popular. Yes, you did just mention that, but you weren't talking about Linux. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, I'm, I've never worked in embedded either. So this is probably just ignorance on my part, but that kind of surprised me. I didn't think, I knew it was like outdated and it wasn't running like the latest kernel versions and stuff like that, but 2.6. Um, it, it doesn't su- it definitely doesn't surprise me okay so i guess uh i guess you you you've worked with embedded a little bit more than i have just because of uh like your work and stuff so yeah it makes sense uh i was just surprised that caught me off guard a little bit but yeah the bugs looked cool uh it's always fun to look at car hacking stuff i think the write-up could have been i i wish they went a little bit more into detail on that second bug like you said it does seem kind of like they're blending together uh not sure why the like they didn't clarify a bit more on the second bug but um like the first bug is pretty cool like it's it's detailed well yeah Um, i mean it's i don't know i'm still i want to actually pull up the cvs here because i'm pretty sure one of them mentions it okay so the issues discovered firmware uh, well i know kind of what i'm looking for here okay it doesn't mention what i thought just one's a stack overflow one's a heap overflows all it really says yeah, okay. I okay. said so never mind. I thought it might have said something different. It doesn't. Yeah. Um the last thing I found interesting was uh they took it was really quick on the fix. Uh according to the timeline, they say it was reported on December 3rd and it looks like it was fixed on December 6th. So it was fixed within 3 days. So I think that uh, that deserves some um you know, to be commended a little bit because I don't know if I've seen a patch time that fast, especially on, like, these issues are a bit more, you know, when you're talking about kernel level and stuff like that, it is a little bit trickier uh, working with that, like, in terms of patches and stuff, especially getting it through the pipeline. 
So yeah, three days. I think. Uh, you no, know, that's well, that pretty. Well, cool. I don't. I don't know. Um, it does say we report Tesla in March 2019. Tesla already fixed them in version 2019 36.2. Where do you see the actual date on that? Um, or do you know the day for that release? Hmm. I can't seem to find the date I was looking at now. Uh, yeah, I had December third and sixth written down, but yeah, no, because this was definitely a March thing. Okay, so I must have had bad notes there. So I'll just forget everything I just said with that. Uh, maybe I maybe I put a note in a bad spot and it was for another topic or something. Uh, yeah, that's my bad. Okay, well, thanks for correcting me on that because <laughs> I would have felt yeah, Unfortunately, they're linked to the advisory uh, from the company that patched it doesn't actually go anywhere so or yeah, doesn't go okay. anywhere useful so that won't tell us okay yeah so yeah forget what i said um like z said they were they were in march so that must have been a different topic Alrighty. so uh yeah our next thing is uh getting back to some fun stuff which is exploiting spider-man uh spider-man 2000 which uh, is apparently a game i didn't know that i guess uh i, w I was like two years old when this game came out so <laughs> you know i was a bit older than that a <laughs> little bit older, yeah. Um, so it's a buffer overflow uh, in file loading. So it talks about trying to exploit this game, and it seems like the person who wrote this article wasn't actually, like, that wasn't their original goal. Uh, they were just trying to reverse it to, you know, make it run on other architectures and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and I'm just going to mention that... uh, Crystal Gamer, their Twitch streamer, who are working on reverse engineering this. I do just want to give them a quick shout out. We're not all that huge to send people there. Looks like they've just done four streams, um, at least recently. It's just been their four streams basically looking at and exploiting this issue. Yeah, their goal was working on reverse engineering the Spider-Man 2000 game, as Spectre said, for it to kind of work on or to be able to port it over to other systems. Yeah. So while they were doing that, uh, they found an issue where uh, textures were loaded into a stack buffer, but there was no bounds checking. So, you know, straight up stack. Overflow. Well, I, I don't want to say textures. The file was called textures.dat, but as they indicate, um, it or, wasn't as a, used. Yeah, textures.dat is a file that exists in the game's directory and, apparent, and is apparently useless or appears to be useless since the lack of it doesn't cause any harm to the game or experience. So, so my you know, speculation on that is probably something they were going to use, and then they refactored code somewhere that didn't use that, but they forgot to remove that code or something. Yeah, something that, would, those lines. that would probably be a safe guess. Extremely straightforward exploit here, too. Because um, all it did basically reads the file into a buffer. Uh, doesn't actually care about size. So all they did was, you know, write their dummy four bytes for the size that it reads um write their shell code add return value there's no nx there's no aslr return to your shell code and away you go tts uh, style exploit yeah yeah and i mean i this has existed actually before i mean there was a game i tried to look up what the title was but i couldn't find it again um that their actual update system they just didn't ship an update system so somebody found a buffer overflow in their news. Like in the little news they'd give to people if they sent a large enough page. So they use that to actually patch their game live. <laughs> uh, or to update cool. their game. 
And I found a similar issue actually in uh, Metal Gear Online 1 when I was working on that. The news loader in there has an overflow. I have not used it to like live patch the game. I've thought about it. <laughs> uh, I, I've thought that would be a fun project. I haven't done it though. Uh, yeah. But I mean, like, it definitely seems like it happens in games for some reason. Uh, and I do just want to say, I love kind of these types of attacks. I mean, this, you're not looking at this and really <laughs> learning a lot. But I love this because you don't look at Spider-Man 2000 unless you care about Unless you've got some passion driving you to look at this. So I don't know what their history is with the game. If they speed run it. If they do something with it. If they just really, really enjoy it. But I love, you know, seeing these passion projects. It's like there's no APT that's targeting Spider-Man 2000. <laughs> you never know, man. It could be somebody out there. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's definitely like more of a fun thing. One thing I thought was kind of cool too, and kind of adds to that like CTF style of the exploit, was the file was encrypted with a uh, symmetric XOR key. So, uh, like it was a little bit more complex than just like a trivial right. stack overflow. Right, I, I did forget about data. that. There was there was that, and yeah. um, I will mention that Metal Gear Online, same thing, static XOR key. Really. So Common thing, it happened. Yeah. Well, I, I honestly running XOR is probably the classic way people think they're implementing a one-time pad. Uh, they'll usually add a little bit something, but oh no, I've seen XOR with a static key so many times, so many clients that try and roll their own crypto that effectively resolves to that, or maybe they'll do some extra little thing to seed their key or something, but. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's such an easy thing, and it looks like it gives you good results. It's just such an easy thing to screw up. Yeah. So, you know, overall, fun article. Uh, see, you know, would be a perfect, like, CTF-style challenge. Uh, but overall, the reason we covered it is we just wanted to, uh, you know, promote some zero days, you know. Yeah, we are, where, uh, we this, are zero days for day zero. <laughs> yeah, this hasn't been patched, so this is an O-Day. You can go use this and exploit all the spider-man 2000 users i i mean don't do that um <laughs> we, we can't encourage any illegal action but it's there you know yep. the, the old day's been dropped well i guess it's it's uh a little bit more than an old day now what would that yeah. be a 10 day 11 day yeah i guess <laughs> um yeah so basically um we need to patch immediately uh, I, you know what? I think this person should go for a CVE. Yeah, well, responsible <laughs> disclosure too. You know, expect that. Yeah. So, um, back to some serious stuff. We have the alert alarm uh, SMS exploit. So this this post was about a uh, a system called Alert Alarm. I think it's a Swedish company they mention. Uh, so it seems to be kind of like a smart alarm type deal. Uh, you can unlock the door with like your phone or with like a physical keypad and the way it communicates is it'll primarily try to do it over gsm but uh, it'll fall back to sms uh so they were interested in the sms aspect uh and primarily focused on the crypto uh, of the communication are you... i'm sorry did i miss something with the gsm um, um they do they oh using the there. data okay gotcha yeah, yeah. sorry um I I had basically only really focused on that, but yeah, they do using the data connection over GSM. Mentioned that, yeah. so okay, that's 
I thought I missed some huge thing. And <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so they focus on the crypto, and you know that makes a lot of sense because for a lot of these systems, the crypto is like the main point of failure. It's hard to get crypto right. Most most companies don't, uh, and this company really didn't because um, they used AES CBC, which we already know isn't a great scheme. It's vulnerable to padding Oracle attacks and stuff like that, um, and there's no integrity checking mechanism on the encrypted messages. And then to make it even worse, they have reduced key space because where the key is supposed to be 128 bits, they actually only, like, they null out, like, all the other bits except for four bits of the key. So well, they null out or they're all zero, like, the character zero. Oh, yeah. Is what I think it zero. is. I think it's the character zero. Yeah. Um, and then it's the digits. I, like, I think it's ASCII. Um, but they, because they don't use any sort of key derivation thing in there either. Uh, so the crypto like i said malleable and it is it does require uh garbage like you sacrifice one block to control the next block uh in order to actually do that and these are small messages of just one block but you control the iv so that's kind of your block to control yeah um you can't so you can flip you can basically just flip bits uh which is useful in this case uh, so if we actually go and take a look at what the messages look like, and essentially all they found was when they use this app, it created an SMS. Um, and essentially, ultimately what that was doing, they're using their app. Um, when you want to turn your alarm on or off, it would create this little message um, in the message formats here of like, you know, SMS version. I don't think they actually talked about what exactly that was. It seemed like it was always the same value. I, J, year, month, minus one, probably zero index, uh, day, hour, minute, user ID, and a couple no bytes at the end. Or perhaps that was more extended for user ID. I don't think they tried to use, you know, 16,000 something, I want to say, uh, user IDs. Probably didn't try that. Anyway, so they had that message size, and... Where they got that from is basically just send a text message to the actual alarm. So the alarm itself has a little, has a SIM card in it or whatever. It's on a network that can receive this message. They figured out what's in there. And yeah, so that I is literally ends up being, it's a, I believe just a single bit. Might be a byte. I want to say bit. Doesn't really matter even if it is larger because it's either a one or a zero. So if you're able to flip bits, as you can with AES-CBC, you can turn that from alarm off to alarm on. So they did a lot of things wrong with the crypto, but the attacks, like, the attacks aren't that terrible. So, like, we mentioned that really limited key space. So that lets you decrypt messages if you're able to intercept them. Yeah. If you're able to intercept them, you can also do the bit flipping. You can, you know, spoof your own also to change what it's doing. But you're not going to be able to send, like, if you need to figure out uh, what the, um, if you're trying to figure out what the pin is, because that's what the, sorry, we haven't really explained that, I don't think. Um, it limits you to about 10,000 possibilities because it's all zeros and then it's whatever your actual like device pin is. Um, it's kind of mentioned here. It's the 
the key or your actual your actual pin on the device is your key and then it's just a bunch of zeros before that uh, if you're trying to brute force that though you're not easily able to just send 10,000 sms messages on pretty much any network so trying to brute force that from nothing like if you're trying to decrypt something you've collected that can be done you know trivially and very quickly but using even a key derivation thing isn't isn't really going to stop you even if it takes like a second to calculate each key which is what kind of part of or is part of the benefit of using the key derivation obviously just having a stronger key in general is the other benefit you know not repeating zeros um but even if it were to take like a second that's still just a few hours to try every possibility in decrypting like it's not it's not really a solution that matters um just having a better key generation system is all that matters there uh and Sorry, not I'm, using AESCVC. <laughs> like, that, that's probably, like, the main thing. Is... I, I mean, if it was EBC, I'd be like, yeah, okay. Um, don't use CBC. I, it, I mean, padding Oracle depends on the padding itself. It's not just CBC vulnerable. It's the padding matters. You can use different paddings. Okay. Um, I mean, although, like, though, with that, like, say, if you're if you have an oracle, in this case, though, you don't have an oracle, so that that's not really relevant here. Uh, you don't have a way to test if something decrypts properly or not. Yeah, um, I mean, oh, go ahead. Overall, I just, I I think we see a lot of these crypto issues a lot in smart lock stuff, and I don't know why. Um. These crypto failures, like, you know, crypto failures are common across a lot of devices, like I was saying earlier. But in smart locks, I, I don't know if we've seen a smart lock yet that's, like, done it right. Um, well, we wouldn't be talking about it on here. Who knows? Did. Maybe we would be. No. Um, but, yeah, like, there's not really much of an excuse for them to be that poor. That being said, though, I don't think burglars are going to be going around Mr. Robot style. Uh, with like phones running Python scripts against people's locks to break in. Uh, no, so... I mean if somebody's being targeted, it could be useful. Um, that said, it's like you know if you've got it, I am IMSI catcher, you know, fifteen hundred bucks. You can recover the pin by intercepting one message. Like I think that's where the big issue is, just that small key size allowing for the brute force locally of a captured message that does have a barrier to enter. Uh, at like you know thousand fifteen hundred bucks to get the catcher that i think is the big issue here because the other things uh like intercept and uh turning off and on the alarm you know intercepting the message and flipping what it's doing the bit flipping stuff um since you know the time like you can probably craft a message if you can intercept one so the ability to decrypt, I think, kind of is the key to everything here. Um, like I mentioned, KDF, I don't think's really the issue here. And he also mentions they don't use any key exchange protocol. I don't really think it's even wise to push for. Like, he mentioned specifically they're not using Diffie-Hellman. So that would require, you know, at least two to three, if you want, if, like, depending on whether or not you want to fix some values. A little less secure, but... 
it would require several text messages to go through instead of just the one small message. Uh, like, I don't know, key exchange makes sense when you're trying to change protocols, but it doesn't make sense in this case. And I just don't know what solution to offer while keeping this rough idea. Uh, you know, an SMS message goes out. It's like better key generation. Like the key needs to take up the entire key space. And the app needs to be able to know that. So I think like my only thought is if there were some sort of like the initial pairing or something would expose that key out. So that would be a weakness, of course, it would be, but you'd have a stronger key that would be harder to brute force unless somebody happened to capture the very first kind of syncing or pairing with that device. Obviously, it's not Bluetooth, but like some sort of method for that. Otherwise, like, I mean, you're right. It, I don't know how to, to offer of how a solution for it properly. That. You're right. It's hard to implement like in, like 100% secure, and I don't even know if it's you know entirely possible to do that. That being said, um, there were like a numerous number of failures here that were easily preventable, which you know I think is noteworthy. Which and ones are you thinking of? The only like one the I really key see space. Is... like that's well, one, yeah. Right? So that's like, what I just mentioned. Yeah, um, and like you know. They mentioned like they don't use any unique uh like IDs or anything like that to you know but what but so that was also a comment he made before he realized that every device had was on a network. It wasn't a decentralized system that you're sending these SMSs to. Um you're sending an SMS to your actual device in your home. So it is a unique phone number. Okay. Uh which resolves a lot of that. A lot of the issues on the uniqueness because you're not going to have somebody from like another system sending a message to your uh system basically like everybody's got their own thing so that that is the unique target basically yeah so um they note that this this is actually technically i guess another zero day uh just because uh it doesn't seem like this issue has been fixed uh when i went to look <laughs> do they at even the... have an update process that's a good point too but i mean even for new like for new locks uh he reported it he said on july 10th let me just verify this because uh, i was wrong on the last one so let me just make sure but i think he said it was july 10th that he reported it and uh you know they were kind of giving him the runaround saying okay we're trying to you know we're testing some stuff uh and then you know it got to november and reached out again and it was just the same thing like they'll get we'll get back to you later right so it was over half a year, so he was like, screw it, I'll just drop it. So Yeah, this which is, I think is fair for him to do, too. Yeah, six months is a long time. Uh, it is weird that, like, you know, they seem to be giving him the runaround. They don't really seem to be too serious about the issues. Um, that being said, like, it is worth noting with smart locks and stuff like that, these are deterrent systems. Well, to be clear, this proof. isn't a lock, though. This is just an alarm. Or, yeah, sorry, alarm. Like, um, And one thing, I just want to jump in really quick since we moved off from the topic, but one of the other issues there, since I was asking you to actually name what kind of all these issues were, the other one is just a lack of integrity checking, uh, which would stop kind of the bit flipping. But, um, and th that isn't really an issue here because you don't need to really do the bit flipping. Like, you're able, if you're, a if you're in the position to bit flip, you're in the position to decrypt. Uh, but once they resolve that, then the integrity checking would matter. Yeah. 
So we'll we'll cap that off and move to routers. Uh, so there was an RCE disclosed in the D-Link DIR uh, 859 routers. So it was posted on the 24th. So another one that's a little bit older, but you know it happened while we were away. Um, and the gist of it seems to be basically a command injection and a request to the router through the service parameter. Kind uh, of. It's so it's not. Uh, it's in UPnP, Universal Plug and Play. Um, so the reason why you maybe saw that and we're thinking it's, you know, an HTTP is, well, another name for UPnP is HTTP over UDP. Um, it looks very much like HTTP. Um, uses a very similar setup. Um, uses like, you know, host, like uses headers. Looks the same, but it's in a uh, subscribe verb, which is not a verb in HTTP. You've got get, post, you know, put, delete. You don't have uh, subscribe. Um, okay. So basically, UPnP, obviously, it's over UDP to start with. Um, basically, it looks a lot like HTTP. Very similar. Um, I'm just trying to find an example of the initial request here. Because it shows it translating it to something that's more HTTP. Well, it's a line line split uh, uh, key value set up there. You can kind of see the method equals subscribe. It takes the verb and changes the request for when it actually runs the PHP script, which is where the issue is. As you're saying, though, it is a fairly simple issue. I did just want to mention it's not in HTTP. It is in this other protocol. Yeah. Uh, but it's... No, go ahead. Well, I wanted to comment a little bit on the article, because like you said, it seems like a pretty trivial issue. Okay, uh, then before you do that, I'm just going to finish okay. describing what the issue was. Okay, go ahead. Obviously, command injection's already kind of been spoiled. Basically, um, you pass in the service uh, in the initial UPnP request. Subscribe thing, it had service equals, and then you would provide it the file name. And from there, one of which is, uh, it will split up that URL into a bunch of different values, into a bunch of headers, basically. It translates, um, it actually translates some of the headers out of UPMP, just place them in there. That sends to the PHP. Shell file ends up being that server equals part. Um, and shell file, it ends up being sent into, written into a script that it ends up using, basically. That ends up executing the script. Uh, should be somewhere in this file. Yeah, right here. Uh, literally, it takes shell file. Toss it right there with this RMRF. It's trying to delete itself. The shell file. Um, and it's writing into that a little bit earlier. Also, I write shell file. But literally writes it in there. So you add a back tick. You add your commands. And it gets executed as part of that. Really straightforward RC out of UPnP request. Uh, yeah. So sorry, you're going to go into something about the... Yeah, about the article. Um, I, I don't know if you'll end up disagreeing with me here. Um, I think the, the article is unnecessarily overcomplicated. Uh, when I saw it going into binary, you know, it showed screenshots going into IDA, looking at the disassembly. I'm like, oh, neat. This looks like a binary level issue. And then it's like, oh, no, this is just like, you know, 
we reversed some of it and then we found this like command injection and I, yeah I was this like, does I was not require that i oh yeah. i was disappointed by that now that you've yeah. mentioned i kind of thought the same like there's no reason to get into like the control flow graph and like the I'm kind assembly of the like like just because they are reversing it and that is part of the process obviously it's just it it adds it adds a higher barrier to the article well, were they even people? reversing it, or did they find it and then look for how the exploit worked? Because they do kind of mention for a better understanding of how the vulnerability occurs, you know, here's the decompiled source. Uh, which could be that this is working backwards. They had the issue, now how did it happen? Yeah. I mean, it's fair that they would think that they might want to include that, just for, for you know, trying to be, uh, you know, more in-depth. But it seemed to make the article harder to read for not much of a reason. I don't think it really added much. So, you know, like I said, I was a bit disappointed. I was thinking like, oh, cool, binary level issue. They, mess they mentioned sprintf. I was like, oh, is it like a format string? But no, it's it's just they're mentioning how it gets to the the command yeah. injection issue. Yeah, so. no, I, I agree. Like I, or at least I felt like it was a bit excessive. Like a, if you remove that, the article's pretty much just as good. Yeah. Like, it doesn't add very much. I felt cheated. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, so, especially yeah. I did because, you know, I'll add this to our talking points by looking at, you know, these pretty pictures. So here I think it's something a little bit deeper and it's not. So uh, Cisco uh, had some issues. Uh, there was a security advisory posted. Uh, there were some vulnerabilities found in their network manager authentic uh or network manager well data, dat center, data manager. center network manager yeah like just data center kind of matters there in terms of the target audience yeah yeah i I, mean, I read a little bit too far into the sentence there um, they definitely um, they had several issues i'm just opening up the other thing here um looks like from january 2nd like there's six there's like seven yeah. Is it seven? Did I miss yeah, count? Yeah, seven. Yeah. Oh, wait. I only see no. six. Yeah, uh, no, there six, are six. more CVEs. Some of these have multiple CVEs, but six kind of root issues. Um, and we're not going to talk about all of them. I did think, you know, obviously there's the critical one, which is the one we actually have as our main link for this, um, which is an authentication bypass in a data center network manager. Sounds pretty bad, and it it is. Um <laughs> And the in funny terms thing of was, also, it seemed like they had one for each protocol. They had one for uh, in the REST API, they had one in the SOAP API, and they had one in the web-based well, uh, interface. Well, at that point, it's probably the same code. That's what I was thinking, too. Because it's an attacker could exploit this vulnerability by using a static key to craft a valid session token. That's basically all the information we have. And it sounds to me like they kind of have stateful session tokens. That is... Uh, because oftentimes, there's a lot of ways you can implement sessions, but one such way is you generate a random ID, map it off to a file, a database row, something. But it's basically just that session ID is just an ID. Completely random, has no meaning on it, of its own. Another option, though, is to encrypt, or I mean, you could just sign, but generally it's referred to encrypt. 
uh, to encrypt certain user values, user information, right in the token itself. And then you don't even need to do a database lookup. You just need to decrypt that. And that's what it sounds like they're doing here by using a static key to craft a valid session token. It sounds like you're able to craft your own session that, you know, has admin equals one or like looks legitimate or is legitimate. Um, stupid issue for using a static key that is apparently like across installs. Like everybody has the same key. Uh, yeah, maybe awesome. not it's not it's not entirely clear that that's the case but by saying static key like i mean that's how i would read that i could understand if somebody were to read that a little bit differently though and so, yeah, yeah it's oh go ahead yeah i was just gonna say like just some stupid issues uh i did have one uh thing that i was wondering though uh i'm not sure if it was in this advisor was this one of the links you updated after we had it already um, no, I don't think, think so. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I, I do still seeing... want to talk about this issue though. Okay. So go on. I'll, I'll talk about that after. Then. So the rest API and the soap API had this, which was the static encryption key. The web-based management interface is different. It's static credentials. Even better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like again, like, especially at data center. I mean, this is Cisco. They're not new to the game. Should know better. Quite frankly, um, so do you want them to the core of shame? <laughs> so, are you okay if I go on to talking about the other Cisco issues, or was what you're going to say kind of related to that? Uh, no, you can you can go into that. Mine is more like at the end when we talk about okay. like the uh, fixing stuff. So, so the other issues, uh, I'm not going to open all of them up here. SQL injection was another high rated one in game. It's all in the same application except. SQL injection REST, SQL injection SOAP API. No mention of the web interface, so this does seem to be at least a little bit limited. Um, but it's obviously still an issue. Uh, they don't actually include the details of it, so I can't even make a guess. Like with the critical one, I can kind of make a guess here about the whole static credentials, static key. Like I can guess what's going on. All they say is the vulnerabilities due to insufficient validation of user input supplied to the API. That could be a lot. Um, it it kind of makes sense that they're a bit more vague with that just because of the potential impact uh, where it is like data center stuff. I can see why they're a bit more touchy with like just saying there's an issue, but we're not going to tell you like almost anything about where it is. Um, well, I mean, they do tell us the authentication bypass, though, is a static key. That's true. So, I mean, it just seems like a weird thing. But they do another weird thing that I think's more worthy of discussion. But just kind of wanting to run through these high ones quickly. Um, the other thing, so the command injection uses literally the same line. The vulnerability is due to insufficient validation of user input supplied to the API. Um, again, one in the REST API, one in the SOAP API. Yeah. Now, where things get weird is this path traversal. And I think I will pull that one up. Okay. So the path traversal is the last high. So I was initially just going to cover the high issues. Um, like I said, it uses that same, same thing. Uh, 
yeah, this vulnerability is due to insufficient validation. Like, I mean, it uses that same same phrasing, but you know, one, this thing ha also has it in uh, this application framework feature, which I didn't go dig into, but it's some other feature that it also has an issue in. Not sure what the deal is, but and a remote attacker with administrative privileges can conduct directory traversal attacks on an affected device. What does that mean? Like, that's not a practical description of what's going on. Directory traversal could be a LFI style thing where you're getting access to read a bunch of files. Um, and that was kind of my initial thought, like, oh, it's just that type of attack. But this is rated high. This is high. The actual CVSS score base seven point two. Um, yeah, C C is high. Uh, CIA are all high. Everything's high. Confidentiality, integrity, availability. So high denial of service attack is possible with here. Files can be modified, and obviously files can be read. So there's another advisory, which is the XML external entity read. Now, so usually path traversals are read things. Obviously, you're able to write with this one. So it could be like an LFI to RC or something. A little bit more on that. The XML one here, though, generally speaking, again, there could be RC. Usually, XML entity is a read thing. Uh, sounds like that's this case. It's got a much lower CVSS score. It's medium, 4.9, and confidentiality is high, and the rest are none. What I find weird, though, is this path traversal is more than a path traversal. Since this is high on everything, there's got to be code execution. They should be mentioning that this is a code execution. So this, I don't know, it feels like they're trying to downplay what the issue is by saying, oh, it's a path traversal vulnerability. When you were scrolled down a little bit more, I actually did see mention that uh, this ability or vulnerability could be abused to arbitrary, uh, get arbitrary right read or execute on any files so what you're saying yeah like no it's true but like if you can arbitrary write and you can arbitrary execute then you you have rce uh yeah no it's definitely rc it's just the fact that they're naming it path traversal is what kind of bugs yeah with that. it seems like they're kind of trying to hit hide that a little bit in the description i see what you mean yeah like i mean it's definitely rc in there because there's pretty much no way you get high for everything without rc yeah. Um I guess there are there are ways but you know it's it's not what you would usually just call path traversal. You usually use the more impactful name when you would talk about vulnerabilities. It's you know not a LFI but LFI to RC or something like that. Like you use I don't know, it just it seems sketchy to me how they've done this, especially because they do have that other one that's read only and you can see that it's just read yeah so the thing that i was gonna kind of cap off with is I, I don't know if you want to go into a discussion about it but one thing i was thinking about was they say in the advisory um that only those with like active contracts or whatever will receive updates right so in this specific case i think that's fine i think data centers you know expecting them to have active contracts i think is fair um but it did kind of make me wonder, like, is that fair in all cases where, like, these software-as-a-service type deals, should security fixes be free, even if your, you know, license has ran out or something like that? 
I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if you want to go deep into that. Um, I don't know if I want to go deep on that right now, but uh, so I haven't really thought about whether or not that should be free because that is just kind of how. So basically, it comes down to offering support and offering yeah. maintenance as being a continuous service. They need to make money continually. Like before, software as a service, you did have. Just software you would buy, and then you would pay for the upgrade. You wouldn't get a free upgrade in the mail when things were on CD. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not, like, I'm not bothered by that system at all. Uh, even if, like, if they really care about security, they should offer security patches for free. At the same time, if you really care about security, you should also be getting the updates and, like, you know, willing to pay a little bit more for that. Um, or at least understand the risks when you don't want to do that. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't have a very fleshed out answer to it or thought on it at this point. I'm thinking maybe we can do like a later discussion video on that. Cause I think it is an interesting question that I don't really see brought up. It was just something I thought of when I was seeing this, obviously, like, I don't want to go too deep into it, but there are some issues like, you know, the code base is going to be different. So backporting security patches, that is a lot of effort. And I don't know if that is reasonable to expect companies to do that. But it was just something I was thinking about when I was reading this. But I think that would be cool to go into like a later discussion video on uh, at some point uh, if we want to do that. So uh, yeah, that, that pretty much covers everything about Cisco. Yeah, uh, There was a Hacker One bounty that was put out uh, or rather disclosed, published uh, for uh, Starbucks Jump Cloud. So I'll be honest here. I didn't even know Starbucks had a, a Hacker One like uh, program. I mean, tons but, of companies are just on Hacker One. Sounds like they paid out like, uh, oh, sorry, sounds like sec. they paid thirty thousand out over the last, uh, ninety days. I think maybe maybe hundred and eighty. I think ninety. Uh, but yeah, it's so I tried actually following up on this one a little bit. Uh, so it's a Jump Cloud API key. If you're not familiar with Jump Cloud, uh, it kind of advertises itself as a uh, directory as a service so kind of think like active directory not like a file directory uh, so it offers directory as a service essentially centralize your auth you get kind of a single sign on you sign in on jump cloud and you can access all these other applications that you set up with it uh, that's just it so the api key kind of would let somebody pull out like user information as is the example in this one where the key actually is present is get system users.go which probably making the request to the system user list. Um, yeah. yeah, so this is an issue we've seen before. Um, I think we've even seen things like, committed. Yeah. That said, I couldn't, like, GitHub, as far as I can tell, Starbucks doesn't have a GitHub. So either in response to this, they just made their entire GitHub private, which would kind of make sense, but you do have. Um, the GitHub, um, I think it was just Starbucks. Like, you do have an organization for Starbucks that has no public repos, but you would expect if they had, if they were public and just closed, they would have an avatar. Like, they'd have some there. So this looks like just somebody else made it, in my opinion. Um, no idea if somebody else did or not, but I can't find a GitHub for Starbucks at all. Which just seemed weird. Like, it seemed like it's even possible that 
this wasn't really open. But that seems like a weird offering then on the bounty. Yeah, they kind of say going through a GitHub search, they found a public repository which contained the API key. So yeah, like it, it just I, I tried. Don't know. So I tried to actually look on GitHub for any repo with gitsystemusers.go, and I couldn't find anything related. Thing. Um, like I I tried to find something on this. Obviously, it makes sense they've gotten rid of it. Like I didn't really expect to find like the file. I just expected to find something that led me to Starbucks even having GitHub. I will be honest, if they fix the issue, uh, why did they block out, like, the, you know, like, they did, like, the CIA-style black marker over, like, the link, the GitHub you repo? See, well, I mean, obviously, they also redacted the key itself. So, obviously, they don't want people knowing um, they've got a GitHub. But it's kind of interesting, right? Like, if they fix it and they're using, like, they changed it so that it doesn't use, like, a hard-coded or static API key that's in the source. It just seems weird that they want to hide that. But that being said, obviously, we don't know everything about, like, the, you know, uh, specifics of the situation. I just found that kind of weird. Um, but, you know, fair enough. I mean, they, they obviously felt that they had to do it for some reason, so... I mean, we've just, seen uh, the redaction when we've talked on Hacker One before. I think one of the other... We Like, we've seen that happen before. Maybe not GitHub links specifically, but the redaction itself has been there even in links before. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing is uh, the payout does uh, seem pretty good for this issue. Uh, $4,000. I thought that I, was pretty cool. I mean, the API key, like I said, this is to, like, the Starbucks authentication system. Of, like, to manage the Starbucks authentication, if it's able to call, like, system users. I believe that's not, that's not like, your you're using it for authentication it's you're interacting at a high level with this api or with like their core api okay uh so like it's a very serious api key to be leaking yeah um uh, that so said i don't know for sure i'm just kind of going by what i see here so maybe it is more related to the authentication yeah so, yeah, we don't have too much information because of the, like, redacted stuff. Um, but, you know, worth mentioning. Uh, like I said, I didn't even know Starbucks had a hacker one, so I, I learned something today. <laughs> so, uh, this was a pretty big story. Uh, this was published, uh, actually, wait, why does it say one hour ago? That must have been the last edit time. Or no, 11 hours ago. Okay, sorry, I was misreading that. The time zone is different, so that's why I was confused. So yeah, it was published uh, today, but 11 hours ago. And it was Google shuts down uh, Xiaomi. Is that how you say that? I, I think it's Xiaomi. I um, believe it's Yaomi. Yaomi, okay. Uh, Yaomi access to assistant following Nest Hub picking up strangers' camera feeds. So I remember seeing this, um, and it was, it was such a stupid issue. It was basically somebody... Uh, just found it by accident you know they were just uh trying to stream it and trying to use it normally and they noticed they were getting other people's camera feeds instead of their own um which is like a serious what the fuck issue <laughs> like uh <laughs> it's kind of crazy if that happens and apparently it was uh it was actually introduced fairly recently it was introduced on the 26th of december they pushed out some update to try to improve streaming quality for poor internet connections so they say, like, this this issue only happened to people who had extremely poor network conditions. And there's only, I think they said, around 1,000 people who integrated the camera with the Google Home Hub. 
Uh, that being said, I don't think that makes it better. Uh, I think this is this is this is such a what the fuck issue, man. Well, I I mean so definitely, but I do want to kind of mention on this seems to me like it's an issue with distributed computing, and let's be honest, in distributed or parallel computing stuff, like it's hard. Honestly, it is. It's difficult. It you think you get it. You think you understand, you know, how to do all the locking and everything just right. You probably don't. Uh, so I kind of remember, like, I, back when I was in university, I took a course fundamentals of distributed, parallel, and I think something else is listed in there, computing. Essentially doing this. And I figured, okay, you know, I've done some of this. You know, I was already working as a developer at the time. Um... Maybe I was already working in security by the time. I don't remember which time it was I went to university. Either way, I had worked as a dev for a while. And, you know, I had a good amount of familiarity with doing distributed computing. And I still, like, kind of when you, you think you get it, until you start realizing all of the edge cases and assumptions that can end up breaking when you're distributed. Um, so I just want to say, like, it's a lot harder than you tend to think it is. Um, so this seems to be some sort of thing like that, or at least to me, that's kind of what I'm seeing with this. Because kind of some of the important things is it would sometimes just serve black data or corrupted images. And the normal functionality is a live stream of data. Uh, whereas even in the best case, the example cases there, um, it was just showing little stills from photos that are from the streams it wasn't showing the actual live stream it was just like here's a shot here's a shot here's a shot um it wasn't a continuous video so this sounds like to me like it's just somebody got that wrong and my thought is yeah kind of two things that normally happen back to back like a message is added to the queue and then this guy's going to grab it or they have priority to grab it or something with the bad internet you know they the wrong feed ends up grabbing it um, realizes and just kind of rejects it, and then the actual connection kind of finishes and they get like this rejected memory slot um, that ends up actually being used for like uh, you know a scratch space just like it's it's uninitialized memory basically uh, for whatever reason kind of link to that obviously there's a ton of reasons why that could be I'm just saying what it kind of looks like to me as basically being somebody screwed up this distributed computing. I think they blamed a little bit of caching on this, which is also a possibility. Um, but I did want to use that as time to kind of talk about, you know, distributed computing can be really difficult. That being said, I mean, if you're, you know, implementing something this sensitive where you're talking about people's privacy, you're absolutely obligated to, uh, you're responsible for the issues, like, you know, no, but is, I mean, I'm just saying it's hard. Like, I I don't want to say like we're like excusing <laughs> some of these issues. I just want to make that clear. I guess like you are saying it's hard, and that is a fair point. But you know, they are still ultimately. I'm saying um, everybody makes the mistakes, and okay. this isn't like it just starts serving the wrong, complete like it streamed as if as if it were normal. Um, yeah. The wrong video feed. There was something else going on in the middle there that was leading to that. Um, it wasn't just like it gave you the wrong feed. You know, like say, it had the corrupted data. It had like the black frames in there. It was stills. 
which I mean, as you were saying, it doesn't excuse it. Like it shouldn't happen, but you know, I'm always trying to be charitable when I go through this and it's like security's hard. A lot of times, like I, maybe it's incompetence if, but I won't, I wouldn't be willing to say that without understanding the issue because this looks like something that's just in a particularly hard area. Okay. Okay. I mean, that's good that, that you brought that up. Um, so it, it is worth noting that until the issue is fixed, I think it's still actually disabled. Uh, so, so oh, Google so... actually disabled the ability to uh, stream using the y Yaomi. <laughs> Yaomi. Yaomi. As um, far as I know, is... that's how it's. Um, so yeah, they disabled actually everything from their app initially. Uh, as of this morning at like 5 a.m. Eastern. Um, most things are back. You just can't stream from the Yaomi Mija, M-I-J-I-A camera, which is the camera in particular that's got an issue. Uh, you basically okay. just can't stream that, but other devices are kind of back online. Okay, so that's a good update. So, uh, we'll talk about some papers. Um, so, Jack Hammer, uh, this is our first paper, and it talks about, uh, performing efficient row hammer attacks on systems that use uh, heterogeneous... Oh, man, I'm going to mess that up. But, uh, yeah, like, basically using FPGA uh, and CPU architectures, so they, they use both. Um, and they, they tunnel in on two Intel machines, the ARIA 10GX and the ARIA 10GX PAC. Um, actually, I meant to look up what that meant, because they, they didn't actually... I don't think they clarified that. There's a few terms in here, like FPGA, okay, that's a bit more obvious, but they use, like, PAC, and they don't, like, that stands for something, I'm sure, right? Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really go into it. Was... I mean, the gist yeah. of this is you've got the F uh, FPGA. Um, essentially, they just launch a row hammer attack from that to the host system, or targeting the host system, and their jackhammer attack is more efficient and faster than doing row hammer from that host CPU. Yeah, they did that. I think it was what Wolf SSL or whatever had a. Um... So last episode we talked about Belcore fault injection, or well, we talked about the fault injection. It was using the Belcore attack and um, what was the other one? Uh, the Lunstra attack, Belcore and Lunstra. Um, exact same attack. So if you want to kind of know a little bit more about the actual fault attack, it's on the last episode. Okay. But um, basically, that's what they use the row hammer for. And, you know, the gist of it is more efficient row hammer using the FPGA. I don't think anybody's really surprised that the uh, FPGA is faster and more efficient. It makes sense. It's just now, you know, with cloud computing and stuff, it's an issue. Yeah. So this this paper was kind of interesting just because it's trying to look at some like new stuff, right? Uh, these FPGA CPU architectures seem to be kind of something new that's coming in, and they're saying, you know, along with this new stuff comes new potential, you know, issues, uh, and that's like their core. Yeah, it comes like less security now because some of those assumptions about the isolation is no longer true. Yeah. So I think there was actually one other interesting discovery. So they 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 talked about the uh, Rowhammer attack uh, and how that could be performed more efficiently. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I think this is separate. But they also talked about doing uh, prime and probe style attacks to the CPU's um, last level cache. 
because uh, they were saying like these. Yeah, they talk about the caching as part of, um, uh, just as part of the types of attacks that you can do with this. Um, it was in the background. Yeah, so they mentioned that like it's resilient to most cache style attacks. They say it's immune to cache attacks from FPGA to CPU, but they say that Prime and Probe, uh, actually, you know, it is vulnerable to that, and the. You know, I don't know too much about this kind of stuff, so I could be totally wrong here. But my assumption is that's because it doesn't rely on shared memory. Uh, so they were, they were detailing some of the attacks, and they noted prime and probe attacks don't rely on shared memory. So I'm guessing that was like the why it was possible to pull off as opposed to some of the other attacks. So I think we talked about prime and probe back in like, um, I'm actually just trying to find it here. Okay. Well, uh, maybe it was episode eleven. Yeah. So while yeah, we talked. That... It was episode eleven. We talked about uh, Prime and Probe. Okay. So I think it's worth uh, noting a little bit about how Rowhammer works from a layman's point of view, just in case you know people listening haven't really you know looked into it or anything. So Rowhammer, uh, as I understand, it's basically just intentionally triggering leaks in DRAM between memory cells. Um, you know, sometimes like you can affect the charge of nearby cells and you can cause bit flips and trigger some, you know, unpredictable behavior. Yeah. Causing uh, bit flips in physically nearby memory. Yeah. So I don't think, uh, Rowhammer style attacks can be prevented entirely. Uh, I think you can mitigate it, uh, one such way that, you know, people. Well, error correcting memory. Refresh rate and error correcting memory, but I don't think you can prevent it entirely. So you know, it's not like a new attack or anything, but it's it's, it's like an it's in this case, fishing. it's being launched from the FG, FPGA. Yeah, which is kind of new. So yeah, I think it's cool that we can cover this even just a little bit, just because it is um, talking about you know some new stuff uh, in terms of like hitting it from an FPGA. But the the thing with this paper is, I think there is a fairly high barrier of entry. Uh, you. You need some background knowledge on like how memory caches work and FPGAs and stuff to fully appreciate it. I think um, I struggled a little bit with this paper just because you know that's not my background. I'm not into the hardware stuff. I don't I. work on that low of a level. So you know I, I can't. I have kind of a layman's point of view on it, and I might be you know <laughs> there might be some hard hardware guy watching. It's like oh man, this guy just said something totally <laughs> you know wrong or something. Um, it is hard. This stuff is like it's a hard uh paper to like fully appreciate um but you know it's it's worth covering just because those fpga and cpu systems are new and this kind of touches on that um this next thing i liked a little bit more though and that's the shadow clone uh paper so well, well yeah it is a paper um so yeah it's called shadow clone thwarting and detecting dop attacks with stack layout randomization and canary dop being data oriented programming so this is some research that was posted by a PhD student uh, that was posted on the 17th. Uh, and the research is about trying to prevent data-only attacks. And this is pretty cool because we've well, talked Data-only programming attacks, which is slightly different from just data-only attacks. Okay. But what I was going to say was recently we've talked about uh, control flow integrity stuff, uh, I think even as recently as the last episode. And one thing we always bring up is you can just avoid it entirely by using data-only attacks or data-oriented programming attacks. Um, so this kind of talks about trying to prevent uh, those circumventions. And 
the way they propose to do that is basically create clones of target functions and then randomly select one to execute at runtime uh, to like check it. And then they also insert stack canaries at compile time into stack variables. Well, so what's also important there is they randomize. So all of these clones that are being made, um, where the name kind of comes from, this shadow clone, um, is that the stack order, so the order of all the variables on the stack are randomized. So not only is it, uh, well, that is kind of where it comes, the issues come from are you have like, you know, a hundred different versions of the function, all of which kind of have all the stack variables in different orders. So you don't know which version of the function you're going to get. Um, so does that at compile time? I'm actually going to pull up the slides because they were fairly, fairly straightforward to follow along with. Yeah, I read the PDF, not the slides. I, I, I probably should have checked the slides out, but... Slides are a little bit easier to go through. Um, and I won't yeah. go through everything, but... Yeah, they have the bullet points here. Generate compile time randomized clones of vulnerable functions. I'll get back to vulnerable functions in a moment. Um, insert compile time random canary into the stack variable. So just somewhere in the middle of... It's, they have the example here. They have the UN32 or canary just kind of added in to the function. So left side... Um, sorry for those of you who aren't watching... Uh, but essentially just in between some of the stack variables, they've just tossed the canary in. Which is pretty cool, like from a, you know, uh, research perspective. It kind of reminds me a little bit of, uh, I don't know if you managed to see it. Um, so uh, Z and I, for those of you who don't know, we're in a reverse engineering discord. And uh, one of the people that we talk to often in there, uh, Nspace, actually gave a talk at CCC. And this kind of reminded me a little bit about his talk. It's not really the same thing, but it's kind of similar in, in like how it's working. Um, but his talk was like fuzzing uh, binaries, and they kind of did like rewriting of the binary, uh, you know, at compilation time. Uh, and that kind of reminded me of this. Uh, I don't know if you managed to check that out, but I just wanted to like no. kind of throw that in there, um, that it was kind of similar to that. But sorry, you can uh, go ahead. Yeah, well, just going to mention, so reorders the actual variables on the stack. You can see on the left side, you've got our one, two, three, four, well, buffer four, but, um, and on the right side, it's two canary, one, four, three. Uh, so that's kind of, it does that reordering, creates a bunch of these functions. Uh, actually it can create a lot of these functions. Um, because what it'll do is it'll create, it has either a threshold value or it'll go to the factorial of the number of variables on the stack that can be a lot obviously it i if i recall correctly it takes the minimum of either threshold so as long as you set threshold yeah minimum threshold or number of alloc a calls and factorial so you know a lot a lot of functions can be created here so essentially when you're trying to do the data oriented attack you're overriding just these pieces of data. You don't overwrite the return value on the stack. You don't actually take control of the uh, code execution. You just go after these points of data and you can do like a Turing complete uh, calculation. For example, you can actually calculate, you know, things about uh, addresses if ASLR is on without actually leaking an address. Um, if you have... Uh, some of the right gadgets to actually do that with the data-oriented attack. Um, and yeah, so it'll check the canary that's in there. 
you don't know which one's going into. So it's a fun idea. This is not going to work in reality. Yeah, I mean they 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 put out some pretty impressive things, right? They say uh, it can limit success rate of attacks to less than one percent, um, and it has low performance overhead. But then they have the caveat when the program is small and has few function calls. Exactly. So this doesn't scale well at all. Like for CTF, like size binaries is probably works great. Yeah, like when so. Speaking about, about like, just the mitigation, yeah, it actually it does a pretty good job. I mean, one of the issues is that it's only able to protect things up to the canary, or after it. Like, depends on where your actual issue is. It may or may not actually offer any protection with the canary. Um, you'd still want to stack canary on there uh, to prevent overwriting the uh, stored return address, but you still end up with not everything's protected, but because of that randomization, because of all the different functions, you don't know which one you're going to get. So it's all kind of protected because of that. Uh, but there is kind of that room. Yeah. Yes. Like it, this would be effective, but huge performance hit. So I've pulled up kind of the slide here. 639.2%. percent <laughs> Uh, that's yeah. per that's a performance loss. So that's obviously with the uh, H two sixty four reference implementation. So like that media encoding. Yeah, and it's all variances are like super high. Like they're they're all almost even. Even like, even like compress is a hundred and fifty. Yeah. Uh, Bzip two is a hundred percent. Obviously, they've got a MCF, which I didn't actually look up what that was, but they have or uh. Word count is uh, five point one three percent in the worst case. Or actually, all of them are five point one three. Oh no, a couple of those are negative. Sorry. Uh, so, so performance improved. I mean, oh, so there we go. Performance improved. Performance on word count. bounces out. <laughs> but I mean, I like the idea. It looks cool. It's just it just sucks that like. In in practicality, maybe this will work for some small userland binaries, but. You'll never, so, this will never touch kernel. This will never touch any major user land components. Um, which so is here's the thing. Um, I mean, stack canaries also introduced, not quite as much, but also introduced as performance hit. And so the solution to that has just been targeting the right functions to protect. Which is one of the things with this. It goes for every function that allocates anything on the stack. Every function Which could that be a you, lot of functions. <laughs> well, especially with people who try to do allocationless programming. So, like, never yeah. actually using the heap. There's... It's adding it, I think, to too many. If they could cut down, like, have better heuristics on which functions to add this to. So, say, you know, only protect functions that have arrays that get passed into another function. Like, arrays on the stack that are passed into another function. Or just functions that pass pointers in general. That might be a better heuristic to use. Um, you do the function that has the array. Because that's the one that's potentially having the stack smashed on. Yeah. Like, I think we should keep an eye on it. In case there are any, like, performance improvements or anything that come later on. Like, obviously, 
I think this is a PhD student. This is probably related to his like trying to get his PhD. So there's probably it's not it's not ending. I don't think. I think he's still doing research into it. So if the performance could be worked on, and like you said, they could do better heuristics, I could see it becoming more practical. Um, so I I won't want to jump to practical because, like I said, we've got uh, closer to practical, we've got stack say. canaries, which are a heck of a lot lighter than this. This. This involves doing a random number generator call before every function in order to decide which function to actually jump into. It requires jumping through. Um, was this a big if? Yeah, it looks like it does it just as like a big uh, if else. That goes from uh, the random call. If it's not equal to zero, it carries on to control zero. Not equal to one, carries on, carries on. Maybe using a lookup table could be faster. I I don't want to get into that. Either way, like there's observations, yeah. There is and to be fair, this is uh LVM IR. So okay. LVM may optimize that way. I don't actually know. May do that better. This is just done and then it has its optimization passes, very likely. Uh especially because he does talk about the branch prediction and misprediction, so that might be related um, also to the uh, basically to it deciding where it's going in those branches. That said, compared to a stack canary, this is very heavy. The other thing I do want to point out is they talk about detection, the security analysis, probability of attacker successfully delivering an attack without being detected. Um... Yeah, I saw that graph. I didn't really fully understand what they were trying to get at. So the PDF goes, or like the actual paper, I guess, goes into more with that. But essentially, it's without causing a seg fault. If you cause a seg fault, you're detected. I can. I think I can already see where you're going with this. That's not gonna. Well, the thing is, like, like people are going to be testing their attacks and stuff on local machines. You're generally not doing this blind. So this is basically like um exploit stability in a sense. Or success well, the success the actual success rate of it, like crashing or not. So my issue just kinda of comes out like it makes sense when you're not talking about or if you're talking about this being done blind. But the whole calculation doesn't seem to really work when you assume the attacker has the binary and knows all of the different layouts that are possible. Uh, because that's what an attacker would know all of the layouts. I don't know how you'd go from all of the layouts to a proper attack. Because you still don't know which one it's going into. It's using RDRAN, so it's using like CPU. Instructor for a random generator. So, like, I don't see the attack there. I don't know how you get that. But, I don't know, using just a seg fault... I don't know, this just seems like a poor way to define its security. Yeah. I feel yeah. like you could point to, you know, the literal difficulty of developing an exploit. Yeah. Overall, I mean... Yeah, I really like the idea... Uh, hopefully it gets worked on a little bit more. Maybe we'll be able to talk about it again if there's any more work done on it uh, and published. Because, like I said, I don't think this is 
you know, uh, the end of, of the, this project. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try to keep a lookout for it. Um, so we're on to our last topic, which is breaking PHP's empty RAND with two values and no brute force uh, by Ambionic Security. Uh, I actually, I know you added this pretty late. Uh, I didn't really get a chance to look at this. So uh, <laughs> you're going to have to carry this one a little bit more. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, what so... was the issue on this one? Well... Pretty much what it says in the title there, breaking empty RAND using two values and no brute force. Uh, so for, generally when you're looking to break an RNG, a random number generator, you want to leak the state. You get the state, you're able to figure out where you are in the state, and then you're able to predict the next values, past values, you're able to get all that information out of it. Uh, in this case, it's if you have uh, not necessarily two specific state values, but you need two state values, um, and they need to be, for reasons, 226 values apart. Uh, but the gist of kind of what's going on here is you're breaking empty rand with only needing to get two values, not like 600 and however many values are actually in the state. Yeah, 624 values are the whole internal state. And I was definitely part of the uh, mentions here. The consensus appeared uh, to be that you needed to obtain the whole internal state or brute force the seed using part of those values to break empty rand. Uh, turns out you can do it with only two. They walk through exactly how this works. Um, and they even include like uh, code for it, and you know, the PHP code and Python samples for doing some of the same stuff. The math itself, like, I only really want to give this a quick shout out, not so much walk through the entire thing, but it looks more difficult than it is. I mean, the symbols, maybe if you're not familiar with them, will take a little bit of work. Modular, uh, modular multiplicative, inverse sounds really fancy, but if you've it's literally like a times b mod m equals one is the inverse so if two numbers a and b mod m uh, so a and b would be inverses of each other mod m if you know mod m they come out to one um you can google it it's it's not actually all that complicated uh, and they talk about kind of how the state scrambled they kind of walk through this and basically because the first 226 state values are calculated in a particular way separate from the rest of them that's why you need the two that are 226 values apart um you can calculate kind of from the scrambled state value that you actually get off mtrn you can calculate the state value from it so essentially you get two outputs from mtrn and you can break the entire random generator um that's a gist of it but the practicality of this is you don't usually, sometimes you do, but oftentimes you're calling MTRAND and you're calling it, say, you know, give me a number between 1 and 100, 1 and 16,000. Not so much calling it to just give the raw value back out. There are cases where it is used. They actually show, like, the case that kind of prompted all of this was that it was being used uh, in an email token. Just added the empty rand value. Um, that said, all I'm really getting at is if you're interested in kind of doing that RNG breaking, it's pretty decent write up. I learned something out of it. 
Um, I mean, we're seeing PHP less and less, but it is definitely still used, so might be useful to someone out there to at least know it exists. Cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, this looks like another uh, challenge. It could be like a fun CTF uh, style challenge. So maybe we'll see it there. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, we could add it onto 0x539.net. Yeah. We've do got it. a challenge site, but I've already got the one empty rand issue on there. That's true. That's true. Or technically two. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that pretty much sums up our topics. Um, yeah, so... Uh, interesting note, I think we might actually end up uh, with a final time of 2020, so it'd be fun if we end it quickly. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, but yeah, so we, you know, we'll wish you all a happy new year. Uh, we're, we're back now, so we'll be back again next Monday uh, at the same time, 3pm uh, Eastern. And uh, we'll be doing, we'll be starting the streams back up. I, I'm not sure if we'll start it up again this week. We'll have to check. Uh, but um, yeah, we'll let, we'll let you guys know on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, so that was the episode of the Day Zero podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed, and we'll see you guys next week.